1: So, we've got one of our most viewed guests back on today, (laughs) John Wedger. You saw what he said about police cover-ups. And after the podcast, he told me he was very good friends with Chris Lambriano. I've been watching Chris's videos on YouTube. He's got all kinds of talk shows about prison rights and activism. And his history goes back to the original London gangsters to the Craze family. We're not just going to dwell on the Krays here today, though. We're going to talk about Chris's prison experience. We're going to talk about what he's doing now. Um, we're going to generally go over his life history. If you've seen him recently on the James English podcast, there's going to be a link in the description box below this video to my podcast, Brother James's Interview with Chris. So I, I urge you guys, recommend you guys, Go over and watch that as well. So, thanks for coming on then. How, how do you guys know each other then? Because you're ex cop, you're ex gangster. Well, let,
2: let me tell you um, I got a, a message um, from a John Wedger um, that he'd like to meet me. Um, so, I, I said yes. But you see, John was not interested in me, he was interested in the craze. And was there a connection? between uh, the Crays and Boothby and, you know, John's, like, kind of thing is to get to the bottom of child abuse. and He won't give up till, he, till he's done that. And I admired that. But to be honest with you, I didn't know anything about their personal life, i.e. their homosexuality or their... Um, what's the name, that, that or abuse of children. So I said to John, you know, that I really didn't know an awful lot to be able to help him. Um, but let's go over to the Lee community where I worked. And I'd introduce him to some people. Well, we met in a garden center and we walked to, well, went across the road and uh, he was blown away. He was absolutely blown away. He got talking to youngsters there with were changing their life. Some had been in there a considerable time. Some had just come there. And uh, he said, Chris, I've got to do something for these people. And he went out and raised £2,000. Uh, and I've got an actual... In fact, got a picture of him presenting the cheque. And he didn't ask for any publicity or anything else like that. It was just this passion to go and do something about this. Uh, and then he raised another two thousand. Yeah, another two grand. Yeah, later by, that year by swimming silly Isles, seventeen swimming miles. Around the silly isles. Now, I only know he did it, and I, I you know say blessings to him for doing it. What made you do that, John? Go and explain.
3: Well, what happened was uh, um, years ago when I first started out on on this journey um, with the child abuse and it was looking into the canal thing, and there was um, and the synchronicity. Chris, it goes all the way. There was um, a a newspaper article and I didn't know where to start. And it was a guy had written a book called No Human Touch. His name was Paul, Paul Halpin. And and he's put an appeal out to the public. He's put a little bit about his life in the care system. And if anyone is suffering like he suffered, he will talk to them. And he left his number. So I rang it. And it turned out he lived a mile away from where I was living. And my kids were really young at the time, so I took him round to my mum's and said, Look, you know, can you look after him? I'm gonna go around and see this guy. So I went round to see this guy, Paul, and he was um a Christian, but he'd lived his life of criminality in and out, but he said about putting the care homes at the age of four and he said it was as if someone had written mug on my head. He said, I went in there, it was a uh, he'd come from an Irish Catholic family and he said, My dad was an alcoholic and his mum had died. He said, But his mum was loving and caring. But he said the first night in there, a priest raped me, and I was a four-year-old kid, and I didn't understand it. And he went into about the dynamics of it and the, and everything else. And from there, he said it was like everywhere I went, he said that it was like they knew. It was like it was written on my head. And he, he ended up as a rent boy on the street. And um, and he he tells this horrific story, which I, I'll go into later because otherwise I lose my timeline. Um, and I, he said I want to help you. He said I want to help you, John. And he said, I can, um, all the time I spent in prison and everything else, he said, you know, how do the police interact with people like me that have been on the street and have been abused? They don't tend to get in. I said, no, they don't. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll ask my my sergeant if you can come give a talk. He went, there's a guy. He said, I end up in in a rehab centre called the lay community. And this was, Chris, this was circa about 2001 or something like this. And he said, there was a guy called Chris Lambriano who did so much good for the people. And that's when I first heard about you. Um, but I think I had heard about your brother yeah. uh, through just the television and everything else. And then I think I did try it and get in touch with you. And I asked if Paul could give a talk. And well, I said, if I can get in touch with this guy, Chris Lambriano, can he give a talk? Would, would you let me have a talk? And I was just assuming. And they went, no, no, no. He, he's an ex-gangster. He can't have kind of <laughs> they, they wrote him straight away. But I did get Paul in. And Paul gave a talk about how people groom uh, the, the, the people, how alcoholism comes into this, and the whole street scene and where it all stems from. That was my first insight. And of course, years went by and everything else. And then the lay community cropped up again, and it was like it kept eating me away. And I thought, I wonder if Chris Lambriano's still doing it. And then I I did research and I saw about um. Your family and everything else, in your interaction, and there was a video of yourself talking about your life. Yeah. Is it the day that changed my life? Or yeah, something? day that changed my yeah. life. Yeah. And I thought I, I just got to get in touch, so I rang up the lay, and I, I think I spoke to Darren,
2: yeah,
3: my manager, and I said, "Look, here's my number. It's up to Chris if he wants to talk, but I would like to talk to him because this is the, the, like, like what I'm doing, and and you're right, there at the time." The 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 case I had dealt with it had a massive organised crime link as well and then but you you had come from the path recommended by Paul. And it was uh when you I remember you rang me and we had that long chat and i I was in the north of England. I was actually visiting my mum at the time, she moved to Chorley, and then we arranged to meet in the garden centre and Chris said, Follow me, come and follow me. We had a cup of tea and we went over there and, and as we I got out of the car, Chris got out of his car, there was a guy that was working in the kitchens and he leant out and he went, Chris, I've got to talk to you. And Chris went over to him and he started saying about he wanted a relapse into alcoholism. And Chris just grabbed hold him through the window and said, look, we all get our times. You've got to stick with it. And then he went round and someone else come up and he gave him a hug and all that. And I just thought, my God, this man's got some substance to him. You know, he, you're doing it, you know, and then... Um, Chris had to go somewhere and got one of the um patients there or whatever they're called, you know, um Resident Resident, resident, that's it. And it was a girl that had worked on the streets as a prostitute when I was doing the investigations and we started talking about everything and she was discussing how it works in the place and how and how her life has changed. And she said, you know, she never really slept in a bed, she'd always be dropped here and there. And then there we are working together and from there, I was just so um, taken aback by the compassion of the place. And then Chris asked me if I would like to give a talk. So um, I, I went up and um, said, Yeah, of course, I'll, I'll go up there one, one evening and give a talk. And what happened was that uh, I had a friend with me and I said, Look, come along with me up to give this talk in the lane. When we got there, Darren, who's the manager, um, said to me, Look, we get quite a few um, speakers come in here and they had about 50 residents. He said, usually we, we get about eight or nine turn up for these talks. We put out to the community that you're coming and everyone wants to turn up, but there's been a lot of unrest during the day and there's been acts of neuron violence. People have been very angry and said, look, we understand if, if you don't want to do it, but we're looking at pulling it because we can't guarantee your safety. And I st- looked round at Chris I said Chris if it's alright with you I- I'll go ahead and uh, so he said oh, okay then so went in there and I was introduced Chris introduced me um, Chris had a little speech and then I got up to the front and I go to talk to his community and it was it was just definitely silence <laughs> and it went for about an hour and I thought I don't know where this is going to go and then there was a there was a big mixed race guy about three rows in and everyone was ever yeah, so polite yeah. all hands went up yeah. and this guy was there and he put his hand up And he said, can I ask a question? I said, no, of course you can, you know. He went, he said, where's your backup? I went, oh, what? I said, oh, well, I haven't really got any backup. And I said, I I work with a guy called Bill. And he said, but he's not here, is he? He said, "You've you've got some balls coming in there, mate. He said, you know what we all think of the police. The police have put everyone, most of us in prison here. And he said, I've heard your story. I want you to hear my story. And he turned around and he said, reeled off this horrendous story. He said, I, I was serving a sentence for torture and kidnap and armed robbery. And he said, my father got me and my sister would, would rape us in front of each other. And then he would torture us. And then he'd get other people to do it. He said, he was an evil man. And it, this guy was from Salford. And he scar down his face and everything. he said, I oh, went, I was come on the most dangerous guys in, in the Manchester area. And he said, so I got into armed robbery and all the hatred and anger... I gave out whenever I, I robbed someone and I tortured them. And, and he turned around and he said, uh, you're a brave man coming and t- talking here. And then he walked up to me and he whispered in my ear, he said, you've got no backup, but now you've got me. And he put his arm around me and he said to everyone, on your feet and give him a round of applause. And it it it, it just done me. It, it, it I drove home and I was, um I got my mate to drive because I was in pieces. and I, And I saw what they did and I saw the damage that had come and then the change. I'd, I'd never seen a guy before, but the compassion. And, and it, it was his will to want me to carry on. And I knew that it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to carry on. I wanted to do it. And I said to Chris, I- I've got to go and get some money. I'll get some money. I didn't know what to do. And then one day I was walking my dog along the canal. I thought, why don't I walk the dog from London, from Parliament, because they're the ones who start all this, and they're the ones who can stop all this. And at the time, you've just interviewed Maggie, and I was doing stuff with Maggie, me and Maggie sort of... That was our inception, sort of linking in together to try and get this out. Maggie was in Manchester because of of the Rochdale thing. So I thought, I'll walk to Manchester, and I can meet up with Maggie, and there's another whistleblower called Pete Jackson. And that's what we did. So I I walked the dog all the way um, on the canal to manchester in the worst winter it was called the beast from the east it was a minus whatever horrendous and then maggie met up with us the last stretch but she couldn't walk too far she had high heels on
1: (laughs) 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 and i knew she'd turn up with high heels people watching this if you're wondering who he's talking about he's talking about maggie oliver who was on the true crime podcast if you click down below this video you can find a link to all the other true crime podcasts you can you can check that one out
3: but from there then the money come in and then you know, I there, there was a other running costs and all that, but we got the money in for that, and then went and presented it. And there was a young—I um, looked after so many people, kids. You know, they've come to me, and, and one girl I helped a lot. She'd um, she'd come from a rough start and was a refugee, and and but she did good, and she went on to do filmmaking. And she needed to do a project, and I said, well, why don't you come up, and I'll ask Chris if you can interview us. And her name's Nellie, Nellie Hughes. If I could give a big call out, she's got her own um, little company f- doing filmmaking. Well done, Nellie. Very proud of you. Nellie came up and did the interview. Um, and then I brought up a good friend of mine called Tracy, who does a lot in the community. Tracy, has got a Greek Anton. name. Anton. Anton, <laughs> Chris knows, because he's a Greek yeah, name, isn't it? Yeah. And she does so much for the community. And I said, Tracy, please come and meet Chris. Please come up and, and see what goes on. So that's when we did the long interview together. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I just thought, what can I do next? Now, I don't wanna hog all this, Chris. So anytime yeah. you want the next time I, I thought about where do I get the money from? Now this um second idea come and that was to cycle from Parliament Square again, you know, the ses- <laughs> all the way. And then I thought I wanna I wanna show someone I I, I can do this, I can really make it. so I cycled to Penzance and then I'll get, again, that was the worst summer, the hottest summer, the driest summer. And and I did it on the worst bike. And I'm going to tell you about this bike in a minute. And then get to the and I swam around the old Cillia. So I can show, I can run, swim, cycle, whatever to do it. And uh, there was a bike um, that we found in a canal, me and my boy. And it was a real crappy old first generation mountain bike. And if you rode to the shops on it, it'd wear you out this thing. And years ago, when I lived in East London, um, my boys were very little. There was a lad there and he was going to go into care. And and this is a true story. And this, this was the real incentive for me. And my kids, I'd always like getting bikes, fix old bikes. And again, this is something that we can yeah. talk about in a actually, Chris. And... And he never had a bike. No one had taught him to ride a bike. He had no father at home and there was problems with his mother and he was looking at going in the careless kid. And I'd always be with my kids walking the dog and he, he would always want to have a chat. And he said, would you get me a bike? And I said, if I, if I, and I didn't have much money, but there was a bike that was in the river. And it was in the river Ching that flowed through Woodford and Chingford. And he went, there's a bike in the river Ching. Will you get it for me? So I waded in this filthy muddy little <laughs> river and I pulled out this little kid's bike. And I took it home and I washed it and I said, well, I'll do it up for you, but you can help me. And he went, yeah, can I? So I stripped it, did all the bearings, stripped the frame down and, you know, cleaned it, nitromosed it all. And and I got him to choose a colour and he chose a blue and he wanted little flecks of other blue. So I did it all and, and I lacquered it, put this bike together and I taught him to ride this bike, this kid, and there's a photo. And I, if only I can find this photo, it breaks my heart I'm thinking of it now. And it's of him stood on his bike going like that because <laughs> he rode for the first time on his own, oh. this little kid. And when I found this bike, and the reason I did this, and this is a point I want to make, I was trying to tell him, no matter if it's been thrown away, son, it can be as good as something that's new and it can actually be even more beautiful than something that's new. And I wanted to install that in him. You might have been thrown away by some people, but you're not being thrown away by me, you know, or and, whatever. And that's
2: what I used to say to the kids at the Lee, or the men and the women, was every time you buy a designer thing or steal a designer thing, <laughs> in actual fact, somebody's worn it before. They've tried it on. So really, it's second hand. Go to a second hand shop in Summertown or wherever local. And they've got designer things in there where they're not going to charge you 100 or £50. Pound, you'll buy it for 2 or £3. Pounds. So it's affordable. You don't have to go and steal to wear the best. You know, you can do it. Um, and there's so many things you can show by ordinary things that things actually work. But the thing was, as you're talking, John, about the raising of the money, I mean, you, you work at an ordinary job. You understand? You've got kids to feed, everything else. You ain't got no fortunes.
3: Nothing. Nothing.
2: You understand nothing. what I'm saying? And,
3: and I've, I've actually spent tens of thousands of my own money yeah. on this. And I have everything. It comes out of my own pocket. Yeah. Now, um, and... You know, I come under a lot of attack, but then it gets worse. The moment when I started talking about yeah. any uh, Satanism, which there's yeah. a lot of people that have been abused in this religious connotation. And it's the same group that attacks me all the time. Yeah. There's some um, strange individual at the moment that's putting videos out about me, but, the, and they all seem to get the first part of the huge, whenever you put in the Google search, they're number. One. And it's the same people do doing it all the time because, yeah. you know, and like someone said to me during the war, when the planes went over the target, they got what they call flak. they said, do "You know, you're over the target. You keep going." And I know on many occasions I've spoke to you well, about at, things. D- different said, times,
2: you spoke to me, and we've prayed together. Yeah, you understand a copper and a gangster. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But what? he's not a policeman. What? What? He's you- a human being <laughs> who's doing a great deal of good. He don't mention the police to me, and I don't mention gangsterism to him. No, never. You understand? I'm. I'm just Chris. I'm an all, I'm an ordinary person. I, okay. I went down a wrong road, but I found my way back onto a right road. I'm a family man. I, I, I think I'm a decent citizen. But so are you guys. You understand what I mean? You can't just throw people on the scrap heap because I oh, he was a policeman. So but, what?
1: So why? Why do you speak to young people, Chris? Why? why?
2: Me? I wanna. I wanna see people. Who were damaged? I want to see them made whole again. I came out of prison after 15 years. You can't be more damaged than that. But at the end of the day, you know, I found a way. I believed, I, I could not believe that God was going to throw me on the scrap heap. He had brought me through that to learn me a lesson. I'd done many things, never mind about the cray thing, throw it off the table. But the other things I'd done that nobody knows about, you understand me. I, 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 that I had real contrition about. Well, what what was the turning point in your life? Was it in prison? You had an epiphany. It wasn't. It well, yeah, it was in prison. I mean, it was a night. I was Charlie Richardson was in the next cell. We uh, we were having a chat. Charlie was a wise man. You could listen to him, and he'd listen to you about all this being the big gangster and all that. I never met that Charlie. I met a Charlie that had travelled the world. I met a Charlie that loved his family. I loved a Charlie that kind, kind of was solid. He looked at other people but also looked into them. And one day I see him talking to an old tramp. I said, Charlie, what are you talking to him about? He said, Chris, he said, he's got a story and I want to listen to it. He said, because his story might learn me something. And I I thought, yeah, you're right, Charlie. And you know, then there was another time. He said, "If you throw your book, if you read a book, read something good." He said, because once you throw your head over the wall, your body will follow. And and that was true. I went on great journeys. He 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 was right into South Africa, and he would kind of give me a book about Shaka the Zulu and all this kind of thing. I didn't know the first Commandos wasn't the British Commandos; they were Zulus. They they formed themselves in tight companies and everything else like that. And then you read about great saints, men who had climbed mountains and women that had done magnificent things. All these people had a belief. Why couldn't I find a belief? If they could do it, and they were standing on a book, they'd not physically seen God or Jesus or whatever. But I'd gone through all the comparative religions, Buddhism, Sufism, all that kind of thing. And I'd learned an awful lot. And then there was another book by a man called Khalil Gibran. I was standing there on this day, and uh, this guy called Johnny Byrne, the officer came along with the, uh, the letters and the mail, and he gave Johnny Byrne a book. Johnny so Byrne looked at it, he went, what do I want that shit for? And threw it on the floor. Anyway, I picked it up. I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "My girlfriend wants to educate me." He said, "I want to read rubbish like that." So I looked. I said, "Would well, you mind if I have it?" He said, "No, Chris. You can have it." The girl was trying to educate him. The guy was. The girl was actually teaching him about love. On the Prophet by Khalil Gibran breaks down love, children, uh, the day, the weather, parents, everything. It's all there. And, and and it's all tidy you can put it back to, put it together again it's not a jigsaw but it opens them up in another way a doorway and he wouldn't walk through it he would not walk through that doorway and I've still got the book today because it means that much to me but then you know I I, I know that people can change even the worst kind of people you know the, the people that go out shoplifting Why do they go out shoplifting, some of these people, to feed their kids? Why do they go out and do something else? Because they're homeless. They've got absolutely nothing. John, you ain't got an awful lot, mate. I know that. Well, well,
3: funny you should say. You
2: Bring along a cheque for £2,000 and then go and do it again. You, a lot of people won't even cross the road yeah. and even fewer will stay there. Well, well, well I'll, I'll
3: tell you the, the strange thing about that when you're saying about um, Charlie Richardson talking to a, a tramp. My, my children were very young and I, I was skint. And like I, I think I said to you before, I had more in common financially and in a lot of other ways with the people I was bringing through the custody door than the ones I was working with. A lot of these had dual incomes, no children. They were incredibly judgmental. And um, One of the, the, the police's biggest um, enemies is snobbery. You know, people going about conspiracies and all this. Please, it does go on, but it's on, it's on a senior level. A lot of it is, is ignorance and, and incompetence and then snobbery as well. And I was skint and I was really skint. And if you, you got a second job, you had to tell them everything. They tried to sack me because I got a second job. I was cutting down trees at a weekend with one of my lads. And it was, it was one of my lads' ninth birthday, and I had no money. And I'm walking along the street. And at the time, I used to work with informants a lot. And I used to lot work with homeless community because there was a there was good source of information. And, uh, and and it was interesting, some of them to talk to. And as I'm walking along, there was one guy, and he was, um, I think, from Madeira. And he was a heroin addict and he's a beggar. And he see me and he said, good night, John. And it was in Victoria. And I I said to him, yeah, 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 see you, mate. And he went, what's the matter? I said, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. He said, no, stop, what's the matter? And I said to him, look, it's my lad's birthday and um, I've got kids coming over because I was a single parent and all that. I said, I've got no money. And I said, I thought I had some money. I've just checked the bank. I've got nothing. And he went, wait there. And he went and gave me 30 quid in loose change. It's begging money. And he gave it to me, and I went what what are you doing?" he said i'll go and I'll go and shoplifting i'll go and uh, I'll go and beg I'll get it back. Have this on me, have this in my birthday present your boy have it on me and he gave me a big hug and do you know what? I paid him back when I got paid, and he, did. he paid for all the I went to um the cash and carry got all the little food and that for this kids' party, and I paid him back had like, thirty quid, and I went up and gave it to him and one of my colleagues saw me giving him the money and reported me reporting me for, you know and of course it was nothing oh. to do with them but and and see this is a level and uh, it, there was no humanity behind it but that that guy what he did again it's acts like that these random acts of kindness I call them that totally like that, that they weaken my knees and i was sitting there and i think my god out of all the brutality i i, I made an analogy chris about someone with a dog And said you get a puppy dog you shout at that dog you kick it you stick things up its ass to be in the vernacular, you know. I said, there's not one human being would be able to put a hand near that dog when it's, when it's older. I said, yeah, that, you can do that to a child and they will still embrace you with kindness. That's a power of humanity and compassion that makes us different from animals, you know. And it does. And it's things like that that really make a difference.
1: Are you raising money for your
2: project now? Yeah, still. Yeah. And
1: is, is there a way that people can donate online that I can put well, below this video? What we're
2: doing at the present time, though, this week, um, I went along to Yeldor Manor which is a Christian rehabilitation centre, does amazing work. And there were seven of us went along. Um, Tony Turner, uh, a chap, he goes around raising money for different charities. And he's another one who's actually supported the Lee. And uh, so the Lee had closed down. So he w- we weren't able to give the money there. So I arranged through Hussein, one of the directors, to actually take it over to Yeldor Manor they laid a lovely meal on for us they uh, the director brought some residents in to speak to us and we were able to have our input and everything and it was marvellous and every one of them people turned round and said that went as visitors I want to do something for this uh, for Yeldor Manor I want to do something you know even Helen my wife yeah, turned round. you know Chris I, I don't know what to do I want to do something um What's what's his name? Uh, Not Tony Turner. Dean. Dean, yeah. Everybody wanted to do something. And so, yeah, I mean, it's in Reading. Um, They have about 30, 40 residents and they do the most wonderful work. They work with animals. uh, They work in the community. They do voluntary work, everything else like that. Um, Yeah, if anybody, you know, feels in their heart, they'd like to help change well yieldable man is about rehabilitation and rebuilding the life so if you want to support chris
1: and john i'll put a link in the description box below this video so they can click over to what yeah. you're doing and they and, can possibly and, donate and it's
3: more than that because what what's happened with um the stuff i've done and then linking to chris we, we built a little community and there's a group of us we meet quite a lot and we discuss how we can raise money and um one of the guys say Tony, he's always always coming up with an idea. Yeah. Dean, they call him the mad artist. Yeah. Give him a shout yeah. up. He's a phenomenal artist, and he does yeah. portraits that are almost like photographs, and auctions them. And this is what we do. We all get together yeah. and try and collude in ways a bit like a bit like a mafia, we yeah. try and go out there to make money and, and to give it back. And when when you look at when the the lay was running, I talked to the director, a local Darren. I said, you know how. What, what is the money situation and he said it's dire because they charge the lay it costs them £17,000 to put one person through this very rigorous detox and rehabilitation and it program. can be
2: it can be for 18 months you know it's not something Amy Winehouse shouldn't be where she is if she'd have come to the Lee we could have had her in there and she would have stayed with us because we'd be pretty tough on her she'd have stayed with us for at least a year and Dropped all the hangers on and everything off. We'd have got into her psyche. We'd actually found out about what her fears was, what things that she believed. You know, God gave her a gift. That gift should still be singing out there. But it's not. It's just a voice silenced. By what? I don't know. Tragedy, pain, anger, everything else. And her life's gone.
1: You mentioned earlier about speaking in schools. Do they listen and how do you know if they are having a, there's like some kind of effect
2: you're having on them? They listen because they'll come up and I always insist on a question time and I'll go around and I'll pick whoever has got their hand up and I'll even hear the last one. I want to hear the last one that's got his hand up. And they ask you every kind of question about your family about, you know, what changed you, what did this? Is there really a Jesus? Do you believe in God? Do you think he really did help you? When you looked in the mirror and saw the devil, was that really you? Yes, it was really me. You understand what I mean? I I was the one, nobody put me in prison but me. I chose it. You understand what I'm saying? I had a clear choice and I didn't. I, I, I didn't take the easy road. What was your first involvement in crime?
0: According to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: With a group of kids as evacuee, they got into a train and um, <laughs> we robbed a <the> train. <laughs> What did you roll? And, and it was cigarettes and cigarettes. other other things like that. How old are you? And I think I was about seven or eight. My mum and dad didn't find out about that. Well, they'd just gone off the roof. Um, and oh, yeah. then, Were you London based then? No, no, no. It was Leicester. Leicester. Um, and my father worked um, with the Spitfires, fixing the Spitfires when they come down. And Ibstock, it was a place called Ibstock in Leicestershire. And um, he took me out up, up there and I I just wanted to be a pilot or, or, or in the Royal Navy. That's what my desire was. And um I, I I'd sit in these aeroplanes and the other engineers, I mean, they were great to me, you know. Um so yeah, that was that one incident was the was the train and then I came back we came back to London and I was all right for a period of time. But I came home from school one day and the roof was caved in um, because of the bombs. It was after the war. Everything was bombed out around where I lived. And um, I live in a place called 45 Howland Street. Uh, and that's just underneath the post office tower. Oh, yeah, I know like it. Yeah. And um, around Howland Street was a lovely community. There was an old tramp who had a horse called Gallop her lightly. <laughs> and uh we used to take we used to go out looking for batteries and things like that. And there was a blacksmith there. And I could go and chat with a blacksmith and stuff like that. And it was all kind of characters. an old Chinaman made these lamps, you know, these shades. And he'd teach me a little bit how to do that. Um and then there was a Chinese family. And you went down there and they had all chickens hanging outside because they liked to season the chickens and stuff. But you know, it was a cosmopolitan community, and it was it was something else. So crime didn't affect me down there. I was just too busy being a kid and learning things and going to school and that. And then we moved to the East End, and that was it. That was it.
1: What what before that though? What did your parents do, and what was your relationship like with them?
2: My father was a chef. Uh, my mother was an office cleaner, but for for mainly a house mum, bringing up the kids. Uh, and then when things got pretty tight, uh, she decided to office clean with my my, my sister-in-law. Yeah, but um, what, what was... Well, my, I was in the scout. No, out of the street, something did happen. I'll tell you what it was. Just remembered. Um, I was a cub <laughs> and... Um, we did, did, did. We dob, dob, dob and our Kayla and all the rest of it. And uh, we went and we were doing a, a what do you call it, Um a raffle. And we did it at this hotel. So I thought to myself, I'd like to contribute to the family budget. <laughs> so I went along to this <laughs> tobacconist and I bought some raffle tickets. And I went to the White House Hotel. Right. Do you know where the White House is? Yeah, it's
3: is? Um, just by Great Portland Street. Isn't Great it? Portland Street.
2: Yeah. Uh, I went along there. I stood outside and I started selling these raffle tickets for a shilling a time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well done, my son. <laughs> God bless, God bless There's you. There's a big church there, not there, as well? All the rest of it. So yeah. I'll keep handing them out. Anyway, I got home and my dad said, What are you doing in your cubby uniform? the Cubs are not on today and it it kind of I didn't have an answer (laughs) he said now come on he said tell me what you're doing with it on he said what else are you doing Um, what have you got in your hand and in my hat I had the money and also the two books of raffles he came and took it off of me (laughs) and um, he said uh, what's this for it, it, is it, have you been doing it for the Cubs and he knew I hadn't he said take your your, your uniform off I took it off he got a pair of scissors and he cut it all to pieces Oh, well, he said you're not fit to wear it oh well that's, that's what he but, said it? he said you're not fit to wear it uh, he said uh, all I ever want to be he says, is a decent citizen he said and I wanted you to be the same but you go and do something like that. And uh, he took the money, he gave it to the police, and uh, that was it, but the police never arrested me. You know, it was they could have given it to the Cubs or something else like that, where it was meant to go, but, you know, that was the incident there. And I never held it against my dad, because he was 100% right to do that. You understand what I'm saying? He didn't do it in a rough way. He did it in a way to show me that not only I'd let myself down, but I'd, left, I'd let the troop down. Yeah, he was
3: making you accountable for your yeah, actions. Yeah, he was. He was
2: making, and I'd not, never had that before. And then we moved into the East End. And I could tell you what turned me there was I met a lot of racist people because my dad being Greek and stuff like that. But he was a nice man. always decent, spoke well to people he was the only man I ever heard back in the day turn around to a black man and call him brother you know I, I was amazed when he said it because on some of the houses and some of the uh, uh, guest houses it had no no blacks no no sorry no Asians no dogs and Irish uh, no, so no Irish no dogs Irish, yeah. that's what it said believe me it was all over the country and I'll tell you what I, I went to this house one day to a party with the other kids and this woman turned and said, don't bring the Greek kid in. And I'm standing outside. I, I, I'm white. You understand what I'm saying? I live in, I'm literally a next door neighbour. Why can't I go in? What's different about me? Is my blood some other colour? You know, is my heart damaged? I, I just couldn't get it. And that built up a lot of resentment. Then another time, I saw my dad attacked because he couldn't give a taxi driver a tip at Liverpool Street Station. But, but you know that that, that and, and and I said, Dad, why did they do that? He said, Chris. He said, I tell you, Alexander the Great conquered all the known world. They were. A a, 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 people that had a, a, a country. They had a, a, a culture. They had everything, and they tried to take it out in everywhere they could. And he came to England, and they got off the boat, and they were walking onto the, uh, the mount. You know the, the hills and what have you. He said, and these monkeys come running out, throwing stones at him. And uh, he said, well, we can't teach these people anything. (laughs) And they got back on the boat and left (laughs) and went back to Greece. Well, what he was talking about was England had Stone Age men. Natives, yeah. (laughs) When Greeks Greeks had a culture. And uh, it made me kind of understand it a little bit. But at the end of the day, yeah, I, I couldn't belong. I didn't belong. Then I got myself into some trouble. And I finished up in an approved school. What trouble was that? Um I was nicking lead off the roofs. And uh I think because we had a large family, they saw me as being a kind of a, a troublesome person and they felt for the good of me, uh, and the good of the family and the good of society they'd put me away in an approved school. Well, approved school was in another place, believe me. It was St Vincent's Startford Kent. When I get there, I'm walking down a hall and these kids go, to me, here, you. And they go, who, me? And they go, yeah, who do you support? I said, I don't support anybody. And uh, they said, well, you've got to support somebody. So I said, well, what do you mean? They said, everybody here supports Arsenal. Oh, I said, any other teams? Yeah, the Whites. Yeah. Anyway, I turned and I said, well, I said, i tell you, I, I support the Lilywhites <laughs> because my mum's name was Lily. <laughs> <laughs> and I've supported them ever since. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, but, but so that was it with his kids. So they don't like you for a start because now you're, you've picked a side. And as you're going on, you've got the Catholic brothers, the Dominican brothers they they got a boxing ring. And he said to me, Brother Francis, get in that, uh, what's the name? Get in that ring. I got in the ring, told another kid to get in there. He said, right, start. And you're fighting a kid you don't even know. But, you know, it just kind of crazy stuff. But the other thing was, it was praying. You prayed when you got up at 6 o'clock in the morning. You prayed... uh before lunch, uh, before breakfast. You prayed after breakfast. 11 o'clock, you said the Angelus. Uh, 12 o'clock, when you went in for food, you had to pray. Uh, Afternoon, benediction. In the evening, prayers. And then you go to the dormitory every night, and there's a massive big cross, and you get down on your knees and you say your prayers. But the other thing was they were very violent, these brothers. Any misdemeanour, yeah, yeah. they caned you like you yeah. could not imagine. So the kids had all kind of ideas. If you rubbed rubbed orange peel on your ass,
3: yeah.
2: To be honest with you, <laughs> you know that was stop the sting, <laughs> or banana peels. <laughs> <laughs> I never. It ain't going to work, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it work. Yeah. so I stood the pain instead. No, it's just crazy, really. Were you interested in getting ahead in school? Uh, I didn't think I could, to be honest with you. I I didn't think that uh, I was meant to be educated. Uh, My my father tried to say, he got me a book of Greek, said learn, you know, learn this language. And he was always going on about his beautiful town, his beautiful city, Cyprus. And I said, Dad, if it's so beautiful, why did you leave? He said, because I I came for work. I wanted to find work. Um, And so I went there many years later when I came out of prison. Um, And he was right. It was every bit as beautiful as he said it would be. And I never read the Greek book. He could never understand that. And um, uh, maybe now I would read it and I would know it. But everything comes with time. And being in prison that length of time You learn how to read, learn, inwardly digest. You learn to take something, some substance, and take it apart, analyse it, and come to your own conclusion. That's what life's about. It's about looking at where you are. Can you improve? Or can you move over to the other side and then find peace of mind there and doing something? Do something constructive. Did I ever think I'd work in a rehabilitation centre? Never in a million years. No. I could not see it. Well, I came out of prison. Ideally, I wanted to work um, for a priest or, you know, a religious organisation going around doing old ladies' gardens and footpaths and things like that. Uh, I'd taken a sit in guilds. Another idea of mine was going to uh, Saudi and working on the pipelines. But these doors never opened. You, you understand? God had a bigger plan for me. He was going to put me on the front line. He was going to take me before judges, before royalty, all these different things. And I've stood before them and never respected me for the words that came out of my mouth. The words came out of my mouth because I'd read them. I'd taken them I'd listened. I'd learned. I've understood And that's the most important thing.
3: I found that with me, that the journey I went on wasn't the one I planned.
2: No, neither me. But, John, you don't set out to do something. You kind of get moved to the side to something else, and you think, well, what am I doing here? This is not – what am I doing with these people? I'll, and then I'll, you find that's exactly where you should I've, be. I've got people
3: <laughs> yeah. kipping on the floor of my house. There's always someone who, who's... Yeah. One lad just left the army. He's got nowhere. Yeah. He's on the floor and I've got someone else down. And it's just constantly... I wrote I wrote to the police when I had a hard time and I put on it, look, you know, my back door's broken. It's open. Don't ever go and get a warrant. I'm giving you permission. Just walk in like everyone else yeah. does. And that's but, how it's become.
2: But what you're saying, I worked with a, a, a number of ex-soldiers that were at, at that... Uh, Disorder, the PTSD. PTSD. Oh, I think so many have got that, haven't they? And I talked to them, and they came to the the community and everything else like that. And what they told me, each and every one of them, they wanted to be in a place where they could be alone. They didn't want to be in society. If they went into a pub, they'd be looking around. Oh, they
3: don't like anyone behind them, do they? They don't like any
2: behind them. And one in particular got tasered seven times and had a heart. He had, his heart wasn't correct. And I said, well, what do you really want? He said, what I want, Chris, he says, to get a piece of land that I can use for my fishing and my boat, a a, a little, little rowing boat. He said, so I can get away from everything. I I just don't want to be around people. I don't want to be, I just, I feel nervous and worried. when I don't know what's going to happen next. He said, um... That's what I want. And each one of them did the same. And there was a helicopter pilot there. He said, Chris, he said, I would like to do something. I want you to come and do a talk for me. And uh, so, you know, they just all, you know, they're all in Hillman Provinces, kids. you understand what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. And what they went through, bombs. and but, just. Well, well, there was a guy
3: who was talking to me and he said, The UK was on the verge of a coup d'etat in the 1950s because these lads were coming back from the Second World War, so traumatised, but they were trained and they were tough and they could use a weapon, and that's why they stopped conscription because men were walking on the parade grounds and dragging their sons off, and that's why in the 1950s they built massive amounts of council houses and working man clubs to placate them Mm. because they knew the UK was about to bubble over.
2: John, they're they're sleeping in the doorways. Yeah, I know, yeah. they're They're treated like trash. How can that be right? I can't not. Well, the government
3: just abandons them. You
2: yeah, know, and, it doesn't care. Well, well, if you if you look at, well, I, they know the weight of the coffers to pick their pick their expenses out, don't they? But
3: well, well I, I did a talk for the for the Veterans Party, and I said if you look at our law, when the lads were coming back from the Napoleonic law, um, the Napoleonic conflicts, they were equally as traumatized. They couldn't work. They couldn't do anything. So they were laying on the streets because they couldn't. They just couldn't put the lives together. So they brought in the vagrancy act, so it was illegal to lay on the streets. Then they, the First World War and all that, they were drinking. So they brought in the uh, Licensing Act to stop them drinking. So they do this on purpose. They These laws, are, are, and they know, instead of helping them, they start penalising them, you know.
1: A lot of my friends in the Arizona prison, ex-Marines and stuff, come back traumatised, got on street drugs to self-medicate, ended up in prison. Yeah. But, but going back to your thing, when you got out of the school, what was your life like then?
2: Well, I kind of had the approach school. Yeah. I went and tried to find work. I got a knockback wherever I went. Um, I looked at my brothers; two of them had jobs, proper jobs, highly uh, respected, and everything else like that. So it worked for them. It, it would. It couldn't work for me. All I really wanted to do was belong. I didn't think I belonged anywhere. Um, so I, I kind of. Generated towards the naughty kids and the naughty areas that suited me, and uh, I got into uh, with a couple of the other guys in what you call rolling. And what rolling was was uh, a prostitute would bring a guy to the to the house. Somebody would be hiding behind a wardrobe and they'd nick his wallet.
3: Yeah, it still goes
2: on. Still, still goes yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and I got Nick for that and uh put put back in prison then i came out of there and um i i met some people in prison because I'm, I'm in an education system now you know approved school borstal detention center uh, prison yp now the next run up is proper prison were all the guards back then ex-military yeah a lot of most of them were military people old school who you know, disciplined in the army, they try to put the same discipline into you. That was the way they were. They weren't they weren't unsympathetic, but they were tough. If I could do it, you can do it. You know, you ain't pulling no wool over anybody's eyes here. We're not frightening you. We're ex soldiers, you understand? So, you know, they there was decent people. They were into sport. We were into sport. And that, so I came out of there, and I was determined to uh, to make it straight. And I met this couple of guys, and I got involved with um, safe blowing.
1: Safe blowing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. So I meant to blow a safe in a post office in Stoke Newington, just there by the uh, by the cinema on the front, on, on actually in the main high street. So that'll make for these two guys to come. they don't come, and I think hey I'll do this myself <laughs> so uh, I've got into the post office uh, I've put the jelly knife in the in the in the keyhole, put it all in, put the detonator in, and it it burned down, but only burned down so far so I've gone back, pulled the mailbags off of the safe, lit it again, put the b- mail bags back. It still didn't go go off. Then I hear... On the window. Well, the windows in the post office used to be half...
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, etched,
2: so they... Yeah. Frosted, like... Yeah, to look over. Yeah. And I see a helmet. (laughs) We know you're in there. Didn't know I was, so I thought, right, back out through the roof of the post office, get out on the roof, and all I can see is police dogs and... uh, a policeman. I ain't got to open. They were going, you know, going out the back. There's nowhere to go further along the roofs, long, long drops, probably break your legs. So I go back into the post office itself and I thought there's only one way out of here hit that front window. And that's what I did. I, I ran at the front window, hit it like that, crashed through it. Landed on the pavement, got up and running. I took him right by surprise. <laughs> you know, they didn't think it was yeah. going to come out yeah. that way. They sent the dogs in, uh, Pardon? The dogs yeah, they come after. Yeah, the dogs off. But I was a bus was going by, and I quickly jumped on it. And uh, I'm down the road, and the police car follows. And at the next bus stop, I decided to get off. Get, you know, jump. And uh, there was a, a policeman. He jumped out of the car, and started chasing me, and he got me down in a rugby tackle. And his name was PC Trill. Well, there used to be a thing, an ad on, on the TV. Of a birdseed. Trill makes budgies <laughs> bounce with <Yeah>. health. <laughs> 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 it is unbelievable. Anyway, I go before the magistrates' court. And uh, I, I, I turned around and told him, look, uh, I, I just saw these people. And they said, do you want to keep my eye open for us? And I waited outside and I never saw them. So I went inside the post office I looked around and uh, and they weren't in there either. And I got frightened and I jumped through the front window. Anyway, I didn't get done for the juggler, right? I didn't get done for the what's the name? I got done for breaking and entering. Mm. Uh, and I got two years prison. I was sent to the Vern in Portland. And uh I I you know, I thought I did okay. I did for a time. Um And then I met the craze. Before that, then,
1: in prison, did you have problems or did you know a lot of people?
2: No, I knew a lot of people. Prison for me was a learning curve. And it is, it's a university of crime. You see, you learn. You learn the values of the criminal. You learn what the criminal likes. You learn what the criminal wants. And you also learn one thing don't go near his wife. If he's in prison, if you have to go there to give us some money, knock at the door, wait at the pavement, let her come to the door, give her the envelope. say all the best. Everyone can see you. And walk away. Yeah. Don't do anything untowards. So, was that part of the old school convict code? Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And the other thing is, don't look down on anybody when they're, you know, they're kind of on the floor. So, if you go into a pub, Stick a jar in the middle. Those who've got money, put money in it. Those that ain't, don't bother about it. You're not going to be embarrassed and uh, put it behind the counter. If it needs re-pushing up, those that have got it, are put it into it. Or if you see a, a, a person that's skint and ain't got no money, um, give, them, give them 100 quid or give them 50 or whatever you can do um, because you know that's going to come back. It won't come back maybe in money, nah, but otherwise, it will come it back course, in yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you understand? Yeah, That's the definitely. way it works. So these
1: days, the prison hierarchy is such that the uh, drug kingpins have got the most power. What was it
2: like back then? Back then, the the the, the guys were risk-takers. You, you understand? But they were family men. They didn't, you know, I think every one of them really would have liked to have gone straight. I can't think that... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bruce Reynolds, who once said to me, Chris, he said, watch what the clever ones are doing and do likewise. He was an highly intelligent man, Bruce. Loved his family immensely. You know, didn't think about crime. You know what his passion was? Riding bikes. That was his That was his passion. Charlie Richardson, what was he into? Literature into, uh, uh, what do you call it, minerals? That's all he really was banging into. Uh, who else? Bobby Walsh in the cars, little uh, Roy uh, the Weasel. He was another one who was in the cars. They were all had a, had a passion. And uh, I just kind of, and they were family men. And I know. There was very few of them who didn't cry when they went behind the door yeah. thinking about their kids. Oh, of course they would have done, wouldn't they? Yeah, of yeah. course they would have done. That's why they did it. Yeah, that's have right. A fam- bring the family up. But do you know what? This is the truth. It's going to sound ridiculous. All I ever wanted to do was have a touch. I could then go straight just to find enough to be able to be a straight person. And then I would have pleased my dad because he was the most loveliest man. But, you know, I wanted to buy my mum a fur coat and all. But, I mean, animals were, you know, foxes and uh, Mink. minks and all the rest of it. I mean, uh, today, nobody even thinks about it. Did your dad ever tell you how he thought Pardon? about how you went? Yeah, John, one day. I've been my mate of my and Johnny Scrutton, out of uh, uh, Marble Archway and we'd gone to uh, Champagne Charlie's Club down on the Bayswater Road and we had a right drink and Johnny's dropped me off home and I've cr- crawled out of his car and I've worked my way towards the front door and I've knocked the handle or a knocker and my dad came at the door and he looked at me and he went, this is my son. He said, I'm ashamed of you, that you, he said, that, uh, uh, crawling to the door, you can't walk like a man. He made me so angry, I got to my feet, and in the passageway, I grabbed hold of his shirt and put him up against the wall. And I got him there, I went and pulled my hand back to give it to him full on. And I, I swear to God, I wanted to hit him. I wanted to hurt him because he was hurting me. Yeah. And an angel got hold of my arm. I swear to God, because I couldn't move it. Like, as I'm trying to do it, I can't do it. And I thank that angel because if I'd have done it, I'd never made it through the prison sentence. I would have killed myself. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Because he was the best man. Hero, he was a bloody hero. He was the one who got on a train in the morning, sort of like nine o'clock, to come to Durham Ewing. And then came back at 12, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and he was like in his late 60s. And then he'd have to go down and see Tony on the Isle of Wight. That was another thing. And then Nicky, and one day he said to me in prison, he said, Chris, he said, you you broke my hand. I said, Dad, I would never break your hand. I said, You know, I love you too much and respect you. And he said, You're in prison, Tony's in prison. Nicky's in prison. So I've got two fingers. Oh. And if you go to a place called Waddesdon, which is in quite near where I live. I've been there, yeah. Waddesdon uh, Manor. It's owned by the Rothschilds. Yeah. And on most of the buildings there, they've got this thing called a quiver full of arrows. And the Bible says a quiver full of arrows is five sons. And my father had that. And then he had that. Yeah. So we did break his hand. Yeah. All his hopes and dreams and everything else. But he didn't give up on us. He didn't give up on us. I mean, he, he was a giant. You know, he crossed the road and kept dying and kept going and kept going. He stayed. You know, God bless his soul. He's in the right place now. He died while I was in prison. And they let us out. <laughs> somebody decided to cut up the escort um, so you've got two cut A that's you and Tony me and Tony mm-hmm. and my other three brothers so we're in the car in front and we lose the escort and we're sitting up at Wood Green right on the way to New Southgate and uh, I said Tony what do you think Tony he said Chris he said we come out to bury our dad So what do you think? Oh, you're thinking about having it away? I I did think about that.
0: And I turned around and said... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: We're going to go through with this, I said. He did let us down, we didn't let him down. We came to bury our dad and that's exactly what we're going to do. And we did. We went up there, we had a service, in a Greek Orthodox church, and uh, from there we went to New Southgate Cemetery. It, it was amazing, um, and uh, you know, for the first time, in my uncle Johnny was up in Wood Green. He uh, he laid on dinner for us, and the screws, and the screws took the handcuffs off. They, they took you knew... for a pint, didn't they? As well, oh, didn't yeah. they take you for a pint? <laughs> yeah, but the screws. They, I mean where i amen he shouldn't really be doing this yeah. and uh and they just took the handcuffs off and let us do out so i went out and i walked around and for the first time in many many years i was able to look up at the stars and there was no bars there was no yeah con- you know concrete or anything it was just me and heavens it was you know and my prayers have been answered yeah so many times you understand and of course I wanted to go that way but I went that way and it was the right way Um, reminds me of a guy called John Santamu the Archbishop of York he was telling me when he was on the run in Nigeria they wanted to do him he was a solicitor and he had a big problem with uh, what's his name the uh, uh, Nigerian president what was his name Uh, Idi Amin oh that was Uganda Uganda Idi Amin had a problem with him and uh he went down a road and he saw a dog. I meant, don't go down that road. And he went down another road, he saw another thing. Don't go down that road. And uh, he just, it was crazy, really. And he, he he finally got out of there, but he could never, ever, you know, not look at things. And the other thing he explained to me one day, he said, we were looking for a house for uh, mar- women with children who came from broken homes and things like that. And we travelled all over Brixton and everywhere, Southwark, looking for a place for these women. And we stopped outside a house and we prayed and we felt God was telling us this was the house. And we went away and we did our investigation and there was no way we could have it. He said, but about seven years later, a woman came up to me and said, excuse me, I've been given a house that I don't need. If the church can use it, you're welcome to have it. I said, got it for nothing. And it was the same house. Same house, they, yeah, they, yeah. You understand? Yeah. So it's nice <laughs> to believe in miracles. You know, Sean, there are miracles. And, and, and people can change. Look, what worked for me before I went into prison, eh? You've asked me, well, what was prison like? What was this like? It was hell on earth. The food wasn't good, the company weren't good. And you had people down telling you what to become, what to do, and everything else. They didn't listen. They, they didn't. They it had to be their way or no way. Did you fall afoul of that pun? Did the guards have to discipline you? Yeah, they did frequently. Yeah. What kind of violations? Um, I did. I did some pretty rough stuff. I mean. Um, when I came out of Durham Ewing, where we had everything we wanted, uh, they sent me down to a prison called Albany on the Isle of Wight, and when I got down there, it was a very, very unsettled atmosphere. You had people doing an awful lot of time and that, and uh, so we decided that the, f- and the food was absolutely terrible, and I remember going into the dining room and sitting with Charlie Cray, that's where... We sat together. And he turned around to me and said, Chris, don't involve me in this. He said, I just want to get home. I said, all right, child. I said, but I've got to go and sit somewhere else. And I went over and moved on the table. I went up and got my food, threw it all up in the air. And then the rest of the kids started to do it as well. Um, And um, they shouted, bang up. So six of us decided to bang up in a cell barricade in but then one said oh I need to go to the toilet so he went to the toilet we never saw him again and a mate of mine Freddie Sanson he turned around and said "Uh, uh, I'm going to go downstairs to the toilet he went and the next thing I'm hearing is screams so I've gone down there and they've got him about five or six screws and I just went in throwing right handers and uh, they got me down on the floor and uh, they carried me. They didn't pull me or anything like that. They just carried me, about five of them, down to the block, chucked me in a cell. And all that night, there was banging on the doors. It was like the drums of Hayes. The, the whole of uh, high, you know uh, the Isle of Wight must have heard it. <laughs> and it was January, <laughs> Sean. And um, in the morning, uh, Freddie Sanson came out and he threw a pot of piss over the screws uh, and then I heard crash, bang, wallop, door banged and then they opened little Roy, Ray Powell's door, he's a South London kid and he went out and he threw a pot of piss over him and they batted him. Anyway, my turn, I can either stay or I can go out. I can either think, is this going to work? no, I've got to do what my mates have done. So I got <laughs> so a So easily led. <laughs> I went out, threw it over them. They battered me, I'll tell you the truth. They battered me badly. But I gave it to them as well. So I got what I asked for. And I'm laying, laying in my cell the next morning and the governor comes round and the chief, get to your feet, Lumbery, her. I went, what do you mean? Send them in again, finish it off. You can't do anything more to me. I'm like you you half kicked me to death and, and I'm gonna get up and I'm just gonna be like No, I ain't gonna do that. You do whatever you wanna do. Come in and finish it off. And uh next thing I know this Gilbert Foot the governor came in and he went, My God, what's happened to you, sir? I said, You know exactly what's happened to me. Don't act the innocent. It's, you know exactly. He said, I'm gonna get this put right. He said, I'm getting you over to Parkhurst Hospital immediately. And uh, that's exactly what he did. Sent a, a, cat, a caravan over with the dogs and everything else like that. And he said, I'll get a stretcher. I said, no, you won't. I said, I'm gonna walk because I know some of the screws who battered me would be around the, uh, the what's the name? And I when walk, I got what up-
3: spot you walk out, yeah. I
2: walked out, I looked them all in the eye every one of them. You may have beaten me, but it took a bloody lot of you, <laughs> and I'm still on my feet. <laughs> and that's really, you know, and I went to the Parkhurst Hospital for uh, two weeks. Doctor looked after me and everything else. I thought I'd lose the sight of one eye, kicked some teeth out and that. Um, and then um, I went back over to Albany, and all the boys are shouting out the windows, we won we won we won <laughs> and I thought oh that's good <laughs> and I saw him the screws who'd done it to me so I've chased after him he's ran in locked the gate and uh, I've wandered back in the wing in the chokey block and um, I've got a message Lombriano get your kit together you're going they sent me right up to Hull and uh, and that was it really You know, that was, uh, they knew how to make you suffer. Um, And and Albany had changed. That allowed people so much more than they'd ever had before. Um, Because Gilbert Foot, I remember when I went to see him before it ever kicked off, he said, What do you want? I said, I want what everybody else wants. He said, What's that? I said, Proper, uh, you know, uh, my time, our time, place play could do different things and all the rest of it, you've got no facilities here. He said, I know. He said, I can give you what you want, but I can't give you for everybody. And um, I said, well, it's got to be that way. And, it, you know, that was it. I, he did try. Yeah. But I'm one of these people, I'm like a donkey, you understand what I'm saying? if you kinda of treat me nice, I'd dig my heels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know you're bullshitting me. Hmm. But if you you know, you're genuine, I'll hear you and I'll trot along. Um but at the end of the day that was that was it and uh so there was no rough rides no easy rights in prison. And they were forever you know, suspicious of you. It was always like, We're running this prison, not you. So when you arrived at a prison in maybe ten, fifteen big screws there. Standing light in reception. Just to let you know you weren't the biggest man on the block. And uh so, you know, that was that was it. But uh at the end of the day I kind of uh I learned to swim in the canal, you know. <laughs> in the Regis Canal. Very dirty water. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> Very dirty water couldn't afford to go to the swimming baths. So you swam among the rats and everything yeah, else Yeah, like yeah, yeah and the rest. And in life I've done the same. But in death it will be different. I hope I can make it yeah. to a place that uh you know well, you do a lot of good now, Chris. I, I do, do I do what I can. I'd like know. to do a lot more. Yeah. But to be honest with you, it's not gonna be about the craze all the time. You understand sometimes it's about Chris doing something and I don't want any publicity or anything else like that. I just want someone to say thank you very much. You did well there. Yeah, but Chris uh, that the, the, means an awful lot. Those
3: that know you and those that work with you know that anyway. Yeah. yeah.
2: You know. I mean I've been blessed to get it at the Lee Yeah. exactly. And at other yeah. places, you understand yeah. what I mean. And high court judges when they've turned round and I've stood in the dock and said to a judge, you know, this person, be it a man, woman or or, or elderly, young person, um, this person has done their condition of residence. Um, they showed a, a willingness to sort of become part of the community. Uh, we can help them and they want to help themselves and I'm asking you to give them a chance. And the judge has come back and said, Mr Lumberjano, we listen to you and we agree with you that this person should go and uh, to a rehabilitation centre and uh, go into recovery. That's a real blessing to hear that. Well, I'm no, a
1: judge. When I'm at the end of my life, I'm not going to yeah. look back at all the stupid work I did in the stock market. Yeah. I'm going to look back at like helping the young people, you know, like yeah. you said, when they ask yeah. the questions at the end of the talk and yeah. they stay in the break and they're really engaged.
2: That's good for the soul, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm nearer the end than the beginning. I'm 80 years of age. I never thought I'd see 60 well, maybe 50 even. Yeah, God had another plan. But we were talking earlier, Chris, that uh... the years which the locust have eaten, I will restore to you. So that the locust that the first, what, 30 years of my life. Then it had another 15 years. But it stopped eating away at me maybe around about seven years into the sentence. and And... That changed me totally. And, and, and what it was, I'll tell you what happened. I'm thinking, thinking about the war in Vietnam. I'm thinking about Cambodia, the people dying there. And I'm thinking, who can cry a tear for all the people and the suffering in this world? But let me get away with from Vietnam, because that's a big issue let me look now at a prison everybody in this prison is married got children got relations mothers fathers they've all cried we've brought them into prison with us you can't get away from that you take a whole family into prison when you put a man in prison you just don't put the single individual in prison you put a group of people in prison because they've got to visit, they've got to encourage, they've got to do so many things. They can't walk away from love. How did your mum react to your
1: incarceration? Because my mum had a nervous breakdown over mine.
2: My mum was a soldier. My mum was a Geordie. And she never gave up. And what she felt, she kept to herself. And she died when we were all... She died when, I you know, we were quite, quite young. And... uh but she said, "Chrissy, you know, you're gonna finish up in big, big trouble," and she was right. What did you base that on? The trouble I was getting into. I was up West End, managing, like looking on 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 the door. 18, I was in, you know, on on the doors in the West End. So you're a bouncer. Uh, yeah, clip joints and stuff like that near beer cellars. Um, you know. There was I did an awful lot of stuff and she felt it was all wrong. She was a Catholic, very strong Catholic, very strong believer and she believed that I would kind of fall down. But then going back to sort of like this night and I'm thinking about them people in prison and the grief that they've caused. You know, it's, they think it's all about them, but it's not. It's about all this group of other people who are suffering and the ripples go out and out and out. And then once again, I thought about Vietnam and Cambodia and about the suffering out there, the death and everything else like that. And I thought about the whole world, what a bloody mess it is. You understand what I mean? It's even a bigger mess now. But, uh, you know, it's it's always been that way. And then I think about today, looking back then, I mean, people are crying over 39 people who died in a van. And that's a terrible tragedy, but what about the people who were killed in a very unjust war in Vietnam yeah. and millions, Cambodia? Millions, millions. millions. Yeah, you understand what I mean. And then people can still treat us with a relative kindness, invite us to their country, and everything else like that. So you know, there are the major travels, but then you look at other things, and I thought to myself, when I was born, I was given a garden and I was a gardener in prison and plants and flowers were friends trees were like parents and everything else like that and I had literally gone through this garden Sean and I decimated it I pulled it all up I threw it away like it didn't matter like the man who said to me I've only got two fingers on my hand my, you, you broke three of them and, and it's so true you don't recognise the flowers in your own garden. And maybe sometimes we need to. Maybe sometimes you need to look at somebody and think, don't look at them for their faults. Look at them for their good points. You understand what I'm saying? Look for the flower in each individual. Because there, there is one there. Yeah. You, you can find it. So when you first got involved with the craze, what was your parents' attitude to that? Uh, my dad didn't know nothing about the craze. It meant nothing to him. Um, my mum had died so she never ever met him but it wasn't me who got involved with him really it was my brother Tony he was involved but I never knew that at the time because I wasn't living in London did you
1: like like you know this day and age you hear about like Pablo Escobar and the other big names were they a big name back then or were they pretty low level no no
2: no no they're pretty big names okay but the thing was nobody wanted anything to do with them and why was that well, Brother Charlie's uh, question would probably give you a pretty good idea. Chris, don't tell him anything. They'll want it before they, we've even got it. That was Charlie's thing. They were money mad. Got to have money for this. Got to have money for that. Got to do this. Got to do that. Got to do that. Perfectly charming when you met them. And, uh, but the thieves, the good thieves, they uh, the, the black men, uh the people who did good stuff every, you know that made a lot of money out of crime um, they were loners like you know like the bank robbers and people yeah. like that so the they would stay away from the race. they called them thieves ponces, uh, and that's genuine exactly what they called them and, uh, and they'd want nothing to do with them and neither did I so what happened? I was down a blind beggar. I was trying to buy some dollars, uh, crooked dollars. As and the you guy, do, <laughs> as you do, and the guy never turned up. So I'm waiting to get a bus because my car's in uh, service, and uh, a guy called Ronnie Bender drove by, it. and he said to me, Chris, he said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "My car's in the garage getting fixed. Come and give you lift home." And he drove me home, and uh, I said. Cheers, Ronnie, I'll see you later. And I went home, sat indoors with and my dad, and then there was a knock on the door about half an hour later, and it was Ronnie Bender. I said, what are you doing here? He said, Chris, he said, the twins want to meet you. I said, I don't want to meet them. Do you need a few quid? I said, oh, you know, no, no. And he said, Tony's there. All right, I'll go down there. And uh, they were great. I know, Chris, nice to meet you. Uh, Ronnie Cray, it's lovely to meet you. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe we can do something. We have a favour to ask of you. I said, oh yeah, what's that? He said, "Uh, we'd like you to come to our club in Leicester and bring some of the Birmingham people to the club. Gamblers. So I said, I can do that. They weren't asking me an awful lot. And um, so I did that. I, I showed Charlie Gray, uh, and there's another guy called Mickey Riley, Billy Hills' nephew. Another uh, night, no, he was a decent guy, Mickey. And um, I, they, they didn't believe the kind of lifestyle you could have in Birmingham, where in London, <laughs> you just about survived. <laughs> you know, I took them to a place called the Ponderosa, <laughs> man it was something else it was a house a friend of mine car dealer had underground car parks some uh what's the name hairdressing salon a gym walk-in showers like you'd only find at wembley they couldn't get their head around it um so you know these were supposed to be successful criminals but they were the successful straight men were much uh much stronger in a better position they could ever possibly be. And uh, so I showed him that kind of thing. And that was how I got involved with him through the club. So when I came, I came down to see my dad, because my dad, you know, was a widower on his own. I, and my brothers didn't want to really go to the house. They loved my dad, but they didn't want to go to the house because of my mum going, you lose the mother, you're losing the captain in the ship. And you, you can't handle it. You you can't handle grief when you lose your mum. It's like losing part of the world. Um, but the, the thing was, you know, that he, he I used to go down there every other week and, and stay down there. Until this one week, where a guy called Ray Mill said, Chris, he said, I'm going down to London this week. He said, meet, see my brother Alan. Why don't you come down? I said, no, Ray, I'm... Uh, um, you know, I'm not going down, I said, because I was down last weekend. Come on, he said, come down. He said, I'll meet Tony, you'll meet Alan. We'll have a great time out. No, 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 I don't want to do it. And he kept on. I'd had a few drinks. And I agreed. Worst move I ever made in my whole life. Um, Went down, as agreed saw my dad, me and Tony went off and we went over to Limehouse, met the Mills brothers and then we decided to bring them over into the East End and we went to the Marquess of Cornwallis and their mum was having a party of some description and all the chaps were there and they were there and uh, it was a pretty jolly occasion really, everybody was kind of happy and um, we Left there, and we went to the Queen's Arms, and there Tony said, "Look, why don't we take him to the Regency, and uh, and we can go to West End from there." I said, "Tony, we've been going everywhere. Let's go straight to the West End. We know it's a great place down there, the bestseller. You know, plenty of birds down there. Let's let's have it." And he went, no, let's just go to the Regency." And the Mills brother said, "Yeah, let's do the Regency." For some reason or other, I didn't want to go there but Saturday Night Gangsters was the reason I kept kept my mind on it but uh, anyway we go and loads of people in there and Jack the Hat came by and he went hello he went how you doing and all the rest of it shook his hand and away he went and then a general invitation took a party went on and he went and said to me you coming I said I don't really want to go he said well come on he said come So anyway, we went, I couldn't get my car out, there were that many cars around the Regency, so we got in Jack's car and we went in his car, we got around there, we went to the uh, door, and the door was opened by a guy called Ronnie Hart, and everybody went downstairs, Jack ran into the front room, where's the party, where's the party, where's the girls, where's the booze? And Reggie Cray pulled a gun out. I saw this. I I didn't come down here for this. I did not come down here for this. And uh, I said that. And there's a guy called Connie Whitehead. He went and saw Ronnie Cray. And Ronnie Cray said, Take him home. And he dropped me off home. I sat there and I waited. And I thought, My car's at the Regency. Tony's up there I've got to do something so I had a gun hidden away a Webley 38 I went and got it I fully loaded it up put it in my pack, pocket and uh, I caught a taxi up to the Regency Club got my car and I drove to the uh, the Hope, you know every Road I knocked on the door and this guy called Ronnie Bender the one who introduced me to him Came to the door uh, and I said, Ron, it's Tony there? He went, No. I saw it, Ronnie, I'll see And I went to walk away and he said, Chris, don't leave me. I went, What do you mean, don't leave you? He said, uh, Please, he said, stay with me. I went, What's the matter, Ron? He said, They've killed him. I went, What? Killed him? Killed who? He said, Jack. I said what in front of all them people can you imagine John killing me here now and there's uh, five well f- five is all together but there's four people there's some more out there you know but all together was about 12 people and apparently they murdered him in front of all them people right and I know Ronnie Bender's a soldier he's a decent bloke people like him I've seen him trying his best working in pubs and that kind of thing behind the bar and he turned around and he said Chris please don't leave me I said where are they he said they have run away and I said what's your instructions he said they told me to take the body and throw it over a railway bridge and let the train mash him up and that way no evidence will be available I thought, God, you know, I can't believe this. Them leaving him in that state, and uh, so I said, "Right, come with me." We went downstairs. I looked in the front room, and there was Jack laying there. And I kept thinking he was going to get up. That's what you do. You understand what I mean? You don't. You don't think that somebody's dead, you think they're going to get come back to life. And we went into the kitchen, and I took some socks. And I gave him a pair, put on, I put a pair on myself and um, we went round and we cleaned everything, made sure everything was clean. There was no blood around or anything. And I went upstairs to a bedroom and there was an eider down in there. I got the eider down. But then I noticed two children asleep. Um, So I've tiptoed out of there. I've gone downstairs. We've laid the blanket out. We've lifted Jack and put him on the on, on the uh, sheet rolled it up but where we've been cleaning up I've got a bucket of blood uh, where the congealed blood yeah. on the floor and I've gone upstairs to put it in the toilet put it down the toilet and who should come back at that time but Blonde Carol the lady, the mother of the two children also the one who owned the house yeah. and she said hello Chris she said what are you? you at? I said, look, you and George, go in the bedroom, take it easy. It's been a bit of an altercation. It's all going to be sorted out. Don't worry about that. And she turned around and said, you sure you're all right? I went, yeah. Anyway, I uh, she went in the bedroom. And I, that's when I, I, I had the bucket in my hand. And I went and emptied it then. So she saw what I had in the in the actual bucket went downstairs, had a bit of a tidy up and got things together and um, now we've got to move the body. I said, well how were you going to get that body from this house up to that railway bridge? He said the only thing I could have done was thrown it over my shoulder. A dead weight, isn't it? bud? It's a dead weight. It's a dead weight but not only that, it's bleeding profusely. You understand what I mean? If he's been killed by a knife then obviously, it's, you know, they've been stabbed so many times, apparently. So, what happened then was um, we said, right, we'll put him in the boot of Jack's car, in, in, in the boot of his car. You can't put a body in the boot of a car, it's too small. So, we put him on the back seat, and then there's a, an argument about who's going to drive him. I don't want my brother Tony to drive him. I can't drive him. I've got my own car. I want Ronnie Bender to drive him. Ronnie Bender is adamant he's not going to drive it. He wants nothing to do with it. He'll come with us, but he most
0: certainly is not going to drive it. We then...
2: Uh, finally get a break in traffic because across the road there's a bagel shop uh, like a basement where they all go in and get their bagels all the taxi drivers so it's constantly going there that stops and we managed to get Jack in the car and then Tony says someone's got to drive it I'll drive it which I thought to be honest was a bit heroic of him because Bender didn't I didn't want to so we got behind him and we're driving along, we get up to Mayor Street, and when we get to Mayor Street, a police car pulls in behind Tony. I'm going to tell you the truth, John. No, I, you've told me before, yeah. You understand Go, yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I can't let him take Tony. No, I know. Not with a body. I'm going to have to do something. I don't yeah. want to, but I'm going to have to. And you've got a gun in your back pocket. And I've got a gun in my pocket. Yeah. And as we're driving along, we got the police car sandwiched between us. We get down to the end of May Street and it kind of turns right past the church and a police station. And the police car trotted off there. I have never been so relieved in my life. And then we turn right and we go along until we come down by Cambridge Heath and down that way. And we decide to take in through the Blackmore Tunnel. Take, put it on to South London. So it looks like, you know, nothing happened over our manner it happened on somebody else's manner so finally we lose Tony we go through the Rotherhive rubber, rubber Tunnel we lose Tony don't know where he is and we're driving around looking for him apparently he's run out of petrol Talk, if there's a comedy of errors there's also a tragedy of errors and Jack Dyne was one of them so we finally get to we pick Tony up we find him and he tells us where he's left the car And we go there, and it's right outside the church, and there's been a wedding that day that's all confetti around and everything else like that. And I thought, oh, you know, at least he'll be found and he'll be given a funeral and everything else like that. So it it looks like it's ending well for what it is. You understand it's a total mess, but at least there's a church involved and other things. So we go off and we drop Bender off. Little did I know, Bender then went to Charlie Cray and told him what had happened. A man who wasn't involved and didn't even know it was going to happen or didn't know it happened. He then had to get in touch with the twins, who then told him what had happened and everything else like that. They then learning that, uh, what's the name, uh, that Jack's over in South London they then get Freddie Foreman involved. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You understand what I'm saying? Mm. All people, none of them need to have done a day. Yeah. If they just kept their temper, just kept their cool, dealt with things in a proper manner. No, they've got a frenzy. Why? Because one, Reggie for one, you know, he's lost his wife. She committed suicide. That must be an awful burden. It must also kind of, almost deranged you to to know that kind of thing had happened. And then you got on the other hand, you got Rene, you didn't know, weren't taking his medicine and anything was likely to happen. So that's what you're dealing with. Two people who are really out of control and who don't listen to anybody. I don't know anybody that I can't reason with. But with them two, nobody could, their own firm couldn't read it. why? So, why did he die in the first place? He upset him. Apparently, he was walking around with a shotgun, saying what he was going to do. Apparently, he ripped him off for some uh, tablets, drug tablets, or something. I don't know what the truth to this day is. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think he should have died. I think whatever they did, they didn't achieve nothing. They spent thirty years in prison. They're not a success. They never were a success. They never will be a success. They, they've got the ability to sort of like, how can I put it, um, have people kind of, I don't know, the hero worship them all, and I don't understand it. You know, I look at heroes. I read about a, a, a sailor the other day. He went down into a torpedo that had an atom bomb in it. Him and a couple of other guys, and they managed to get it out And, you know, he didn't want to be a hero. He just did what he had to do on the spur of the moment. And then later on, him and his sister are swimming and his sister is drowning. He goes and saves his sister and loses his own life. That's a hero for you. You understand what I mean? A guy on the front line, you know, out in wherever it might be today. You know, they're heroes. Not some politician who hasn't got a bloody clue, you understand what I'm saying, is only in it for the money, you know, and the good time. sit there, go to sleep, hear, hear, and all that rubbish. No, go down to where them people are and become like them, become a proper hero, care about people, save lives. That's important.
3: Yeah, yeah. You understand? Yeah. Without doubt. You know. that There's a fella on um, Russia Today, the news channel did a, a documentary on a bloke called Gennady Mokalenko and he's a pastor, ex-army guy, and him and his missus go on the streets of the Ukraine, Kiev, and get all the drug-rattled kids that have been used in prostitution, take them in their house, and he goes and finds the paedophiles, their pimps, and beats them up and takes them to the police station and books them in himself. And he's got, like, 40 kids living with him. He borrowed money off the Russian mafia, couldn't pay it back, but when they found out what he was doing, they bought, built him an orphanage. And this guy is a hero. Like you're saying, I watched it. I was in tears watching it.
2: I thought, what a man, a proper man. And and I've been in tears watching people, tremendously brave people. You want to see a film, you know, to bring a tear into your eye, it's called Taking Chance. And it's a guy who dies out in Vietnam. And uh, the guy's got to take him back to his village uh, in America. But the respect that people show on the plane when the coffin comes off. They will stand to attention, salute, take their hats off and all the rest of it. And he gets that respect all the way back. And most amazing film. But I think of my dad, you know, I think that deep inside, I met the bravest man I know. Never heard him once accuse anybody of, like myself or my brothers, you know, we were, this, that and the other, and you know, where was he gonna get the money from or whatever. He he just he just did what had to be done. He had to be there for his sons. But we weren't there for him. Do you understand me, Sean? Yes, we so, weren't yeah. there for him. Yeah. We took him into prison. He might as well have been sitting at the table with us and eating. Because there wasn't many times when he wasn't sitting there. In in his up in his own mind it broke
1: my heart when my mum flew 5,000 miles to see me in Arizona prison and I saw her just sat in the visitation room just looking all sad and yeah yeah I still think about that and
2: you looked at her Mm,
1: and I put you here basically yeah, yeah I put
2: you here but most people you see they don't think about that they don't think what have I done it's somebody else's fault my missus let me down or something else like that they don't think when I go into prison that person, the person I'm supposed to love, is coming in with me. Did I know anything about love? No, I didn't. Did I know anything about life? No, I didn't. I'll tell you why. I was too busy being messing about and doing doing rubbish. The bottom line is, love is something so special, you never meet it till you're ready to meet it. And when you meet, you will never be the same again. It just is something that lifts you out of rubbish. And it makes you look at life as a much because you 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 look at things in a way that you learn about women. It's not about getting in the bed and doing all that kind of stuff, but you learn that they have their differences to you, the way they think, their way their body uh, kind of, how can I put it, the different things they go through emotionally and all the rest of it. Um, like guys you, we we got our own thing we got our own stuff that we go through we don't tell them but when you love somebody you do talk and you can look at these different so if she snaps at you and calls you everything under the sun it's what off a duck's back because you're going to have your real wife back next week she's just gone for a week the devil's got her understand <laughs> what I'm saying that's part of life but the other part as well it's not about you. It's about a collective group of people. I hear lots of people talking about community. Where is the community? The lay community needed help. Who came? Nobody came. It went down the drain. They're hoping to open, open it up again in a very short period of time, maybe a year, and it'll have between 20 and 25 people. it never have to 50 again unless the funding can be found to do it, they would rather spend fortunes putting people away and giving them no hope. So they're topping themselves and doing this, they're doing that. But, but that's okay, you understand? Because when you top yourself, we just got rid of another problem you know, over a longer period. But rehab, it doesn't cost the end of the earth. You've got recovery going on, they'll get into that person's mind. They'll get him to a place where he's never been before. And do you know the place? Into him. Everything's my fault. It's not her fault. It's not that person's fault. It's my fault. And I can stand on it and I'm going to own it. And from now on, I can move forward.
1: Yeah, there's huge money in locking people up. It's just a business.
2: It is a big business. You mentioned Freddie Foreman there. A
1: lot of the young people watching this probably aren't even familiar with him. Can you just explain who he is and what his role was?
2: Well... He had no role, like Charlie Cray. I'd never met him before in my life. And when I see him in the dock, I think, well, what are you doing here? Who are you? But apparently he was a well-known character around South London or wherever. And uh, I found him quite a decent bloke. He'd speak to you, you know. There was no, no didn't walk around like I'm the big I am or anything else like that. He, he acted like a normal man. Um, and I think that the fact was I was just surprised that, you know, he was in that dock. Like Charlie was another one I, I felt surprised that that was there. But that's what they did to them people. You understand me? Like a and, big conspiracy case. Yeah, big conspiracy case. And I can remember my deposition said, we know you had nothing to do with this. So tell us about it. And neither you nor your family will um be affected and i turned around and said don't know what part you're talking about and uh nipper reed said to me "Look, there's my card um give me a call he genuinely give me his card yeah. and treated me with respect he said give me a call he said and uh and i'll like talk to you in private what i did i went and saw violet cray and told her that I'd been arrested in Birmingham, brought back to London, and um, I've uh, and I said they know everything. I've seen it on the on the wall—the names, the uh, you know, the the cases, the offences. It was all on a wall in uh, what's the name? Tintagel House. House. Yeah. And um, she turned around and said, "Please, Chris, we we please come and tell the boys." I said I can't it's too dangerous for me to do that you tell them what I've told you and that's it and she turned around and said please and I heard my own mother's voice when she asked me to do something so once more against my own judgement I did it and I went and saw them they were absolutely over the moon you know Chris great to see you how you doing and all the rest of it and um his girlfriend, Carol, she was there as well and, you know, she thanked me and I, I went away and thinking that'd be the end of it. Within another week, uh, police come out of Birmingham arrested me again, brought me back down to Tiantagio House and uh, Nipari said, I, I've given you opportunity, um, tell us about it now. I said, I can't tell you nothing, Mr Reid, I said, I don't know what you're on about. And he was playing with a gun, and he walked around the desk, and he came right round and hit me over the side of the face with it. And I thought, "You're not going to get a reaction out of me here. I know exactly why you've done that, so you can do me for GBH." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I said, "Did you feel good doing that?" <laughs> good answer. And he looked at me like that. He said. Officer Cater, he said, charge him. And Cater went, what do I charge him with? He said, murder. And that's what they did. They charged me with murder, charged Tony with murder, Ronnie Bender with murder, and we all went to Bow Street. But I don't know they're even in, even inside at the time. I'm in Bow Street, and I could hear some people talking because all the cells are in a line. I thought, am I Tony? I went, Tony, how are you? he went yeah Chris that you I said yeah what are you doing here so I've been charged with murder and Ronnie Bender said I've been charged with murder I said I've been charged with murder so right we got up in front of the beak and got remanded in custody and the following week when I meet everybody like I've just mentioned met uh, the twins again Freddie Foreman uh, Ronnie Cray uh, Charlie Cray and all the rest of them. It just was a total, total mess. And that's genuinely the way it it, it happened.
1: And what was the morale like of the co-defendants at that point, were you thinking?
2: No, 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 listen, we were on top of the world. We could not let ourselves down. We had to keep our spirits up. Ronnie Bender was a a great comedian, ex-soldier, knew how to make people laugh and everything else like that. Uh, But it cost him another uh what five years because the judge Melford Stevenson didn't take kindly to some of his comments <laughs> and gave him twenty years. <laughs> you, twenty really, years. Have you got any examples? Yeah, have you got any examples? Well just some it, you know, said. like, you know, uh look at him and you would be like, he's got dodgy eyes is not he <laughs> all, all, all things like that you understand <laughs> you seen that gesture he's just made the jewellery he's just lifted his eyes up and like, oh. hey, whenever one of our people were talking he's just you know he's throwing wire at the place he was like a, a character um but and then you know when we came down to the cells the twins would go around rubbing your neck and getting rid of tension and all the rest of it um and, uh, yeah, we, you know, little gestures and things like that. And going back in the coach, we'd all sing, it's a long way to Tipperary. <clears> Old <throat> oh, Mother Brown, drawers are <laughs> falling down and all that kind of thing. Did you think you'd but win the case? I think we would have been chucked out. I thought we'd been chucked out. I'll tell you where it fell down. You've got to look at this trial was like neither trial there ever was. What you've got is you've got a bottle of water there and a bottle of water there. That one is the McVitie murder. That one is the Cornell murder. That happened in the Blind Beggar. That happened in in Evering Road. One of the people in that murder had nothing at all to do with this murder. You know, knew nothing about it. Didn't even know it was going to happen. Yeah, he is sitting in the dock. Joint enterprise. You've got the people involved in this, like myself and others, had nothing to do with this. Didn't even know the craze at the time. But it don't matter. We're all going to sit in the dock together. The witness, the witnesses in this case, most of them are people who have turned Queen's evidence. They're more guilty than the people sitting in the dock, but they're not sitting in the dock; they're free. Mm. One of them actually, it, you know, said, "I held Jack the Hat while he was being stabbed." But
3: well, that message was quite clear then, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: it was. So it was obvious. Yeah, but. So I felt the evidence in that was going to be quite poor. It could be challenged. And what was the nature of the other murder? But the other murder was a shooting in the in the Blind Beggar pub. They walked in there. Ian Barry fired a shot into the ceiling, apparently. So they say, I wasn't there, I can't say. Um, and Ronnie Cray walked up to uh, George Cornell and shot him through the head. Right, so that's that's that murder, yeah? Both of these trials are going to be together. Never happened before. Two murders have been placed together with so many defendants. This murder. Everything's going along as expected. And then the barmaid of the blind beggar comes into the dock... And she speaks. It was hearing the voice of an angel. And everybody went down on her evidence. Her evidence convicted the two trials. Wasn't she in in
1: fear of her life to do that? Yeah, no, pun. Was she scared? Like, wasn't she at risk of getting killed as a witness?
2: Well, initially, she was frightened. Yeah. But the police got to her reassured her, and she gave evidence. But she had nothing to do with this murder here. Mm. Yet it was her words in bringing down that one murder that a guilty plea was done for both of them. Mm. First time ever in history, longest murder trial, uh, at number one court in the Old Bailey, that something like that's ever happened.
1: So, because there was so much media attention, the judge. Give maximum sentences.
2: No, it's political. Political. It was political. Well, can you explain that? I think um, they were going to do something when Boothby, um, you know, Boothby was involved. I mean, Boothby went and claimed money, got a, a, a lump sum of money, forty, fifty thousand 50,000
3: pounds. From the Daily Mirror, wasn't it? Da- was it Mirror. Daily Mail or Daily Mirror? Yeah, it, it was 40,000, wasn't it?
2: yeah.
1: So they put a story out about, and this was a politician, is it Boothby? Yeah. Is it a Lord Boothby or something? Yeah, Lord
2: Boothby, yeah. Lord Boothby. What did they say about him? Uh, what did they say? The mirror. The mirror about homosexuality. Rent boys. Uh, rent it? boys, everything.
1: So he was involved in getting rent boys through the craze, is that what they said? No,
2: they said that the craze were getting them for him. Getting them for him. Yeah. Right.
1: So. Was that just a uh, sensationalist story or was that true?
2: I couldn't say, mm. honestly. Whatever they did in private, they did in private. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I was a married man with a daughter. Um, most people in the firm had children and all that kind of thing. Again, the kind of thing we thought of in them days.
3: But well, well, the thing is, Sean, it's like when you spoke to like myself and Maggie, what we exposed went into Parliament, you know there were people involved. And that's why they had to do their best to silence us. And that's when, you know, th- this politics, because wh- whatever you do in, in the criminal world, if it starts affecting political instability, that's when the intelligence services come in. And that's when it's a different
1: ball game. So do you believe then that the Craigs were involved? In- I think
3: they were potentially could have affected politics by bribery of politicians. That's my opinion. And I think that that's an age-old equation that's gone on for a long, long time. So it's still going on so now. So like
1: Epstein, then they had politicians in compromising situations that so they a had doubt. power over. Yeah, without a
3: doubt, 100%. Oh. Without a doubt. And that's what it would have been.
2: I mean, one of their clubs had Lord Effingham. You know. Dryberg
3: was yeah, other one. Yeah, Dryberg
2: was another one. So they had all these kind of people. Um, and it was Harold Wilson who really wanted them away. You know, because he, he was looking at things and thinking, we're going to be brought down here what's going on and he talked to I think it was Simpson was he
3: yeah I think it was he had a commissioner or
2: whatever yeah it was there. and he was the one who actually said we're bringing them down and it, it, even the police it was totally secret what they were about and, and I know I
3: worked on one unit when it was to do with um Protests and all that and, and it become very political and they basically we was in a covert building and we were told certain people will come to Target and went we'll get them for whatever you get them and, that's, yeah. and, and the courts will work in 24
2: hours but you see the thing was Tintagel House I'd never heard about it I knew about Scotland Yard
3: well, Tintagel House sits right next door to MI6
2: yeah that's right yeah, yeah. So, so you know it's, it's, it's all there but the thing was it was political yeah you understand, but they, they had to go down and they had to be shown an example. They couldn't just walk out. I mean, Boothby took them right into the House of Commons,
3: yeah, didn't he?
2: Yeah. And 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 the politicians were disgusted that a man of his stature would actually do something like that. But he wasn't a man of any, any stature, really. <laughs> because, I mean, he nicked L. McMillan's wife, didn't he? Well,
3: well, you you see it a lot with um, the allegations made against Ted Heath and, and Leon Britt and all that. You know, this isn't a little Dolphin Square. It's a elite little club, you know, that, that we're not a member. Of. And they've been. There's a book called Playland. If anyone wants to really look into it, and it's about a guy that talks about the rent boy racket during the '60s and '70s in London, and all the people of influence, politicians and CEOs of big company. One of them was um, Hornby that used to run WH Smith's and high-ranking guards officers are all going to these like rent-boys sex parties.
2: Well, there's another book you can read, John, one I read in prison. It'll tell you all about life. Go to the Book of Proverbs. Read the Bible. It's an open doorway. Walk through it, and I'll tell you, you'll meet some people there, good people, people who are strong, people who are decent, people that cared about people, and it'll tell any young person who don't have a parent, that they have got a parent, one that loves them deeply and wants the very best for them. Let me tell you something. There is somebody out there.
3: I, I, I read the book of Proverbs when my boy was on life support and that <laughs> yeah. it, it. I sat and I read that.
2: Well, I read it and I'll tell you something. I slept with it under my pillow because if great people can climb mountains, cross rivers and oceans and do magnificent things for human nature and they believe in that word of God, then I, I, I can take it. I can take that, and, and I can live with that. And for the rest of my days, you know, I'm going to tell you this. Nobody could do anything with me. The first 30 years of my life, prison, prison, prison. I've been out of prison now, you know, 40 years. I have been back. So no. God really works, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've seen the work you do, you know. Yeah. And it's a it's to be there part if of if I it, hadn't you know? picked the book up, yeah, if I hadn't connected, and that's really what it's all about. It's about connecting. You know, you can't turn a light on till the finger connects with the uh, with the switch. You know, and that's what you're doing. You're turning lights on. But what well, someone say, so John? To, be careful. Yeah. Be careful.
3: I know. I've had my fingers burnt a few times now, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I know that.
2: <laughs> Can
1: you take us what the day of your
2: sentencing was like? Day of my sentencing. We arrived at the Old Bailey. I, d- I don't know what kind of sentence. There's only one mandatory sentence for uh, for murder, which is life. Prior to that, there hadn't been any indeterminate sent like there hadn't been any kind of recommendations. Right. So, the twins went up first, and everybody's wishing each other well, and you know do the best, being a bit comradey. And, uh, they came down. Life and 20 years. But they didn't show any emotion. I mean, it weren't like sadness. It weren't like anything else. They can't afford to show that kind of emotion. Uh, next up was, uh, Ronnie Bendy came down. Life and 20 years he cracked a joke you know it, that was what he did to keep it up then uh, Tony and I go up uh, no Ian Barry goes up Ian Barry always sombre really nice guy Ian he's a kind of thoughtful man he came down uh, he looked and he ducked his nut and he went 20 years and he walked off then Tony and I uh, went up and uh, they said to me uh, you will go to prison for life with a recommendation that you serve 15 years. And I looked up in the, in the, in the uh, what's the name? Gallery. The upper gallery yeah. and saw my dad. And I said, all right, dad, I'll see you later. Meaning I'll see him in the visiting room. People thought I meant I was going to escape. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> As if that, you couldn't believe it, honestly. Ooh. Outside, we got motorcycle outriders. we got helicopters. We've got that full works. And um, I've gone back. I said 15. Tony came down 15. And he went through like that. But we couldn't let people feel that we'd been crushed. So we all came together and we're all singing songs downstairs in the old baby it's all bravado really of course yeah uh, and then we get into the coach we got one of these prison vans the old black blue, one blue black mariah thing yeah and the, the driver was a man called Fred and Fred we had a right ca- right character he was the old driver and it, it was like a charavan we were going to Southend or, <laughs> or going to Margate so uh, we're all singing and everything else like that and when we get to uh Brixton and they got them off that we're staying in Brixton. The twins, Tony, uh Ian Barry. We uh Freddie Foreman he was he went to Brixton and uh Fred was standing there with a board and a piece of paper and he got all the autographs. Oh
3: of right. everybody cool. but that's worth that, a few quid now. That, aren't it?
2: I've never seen anybody sending it. Yeah. Right. You know, it, he yeah. it, it, it kept it for himself. It's a picture of his, his van And that's out there, but the actual uh, thing that we all signed was uh, never never been anywhere. So uh, then we got off at Wandsworth, three of us, and uh, we signed it for him as well. Uh, and if the people lift your spirits. Fred was one of them, although he weren't part of us. Although he was a driver, yeah, you know, he still treated us all with respect. <laughs> So you got Sorry. celebrity status now yeah, in the prison. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So all the inmates were um, were the craze able to run their rackets from the prison because the power they had. And
2: well, they didn't. No, they didn't. They went back to Brixton. Mm. Uh, we went to uh, Wandsworth. Uh, within a matter of three days, uh, we were on a, on a, on a escort up to uh, Durham County, Durham, where. Around the prison system, they had four security wings, top security. This was for the RIA, uh, for people who were considered a highly dangerous if they ever got out. Um, so on the way up to Durham, one of the cars, one of the police cars and the escort clipped a board and it went up in the air and landed on another car. So that was out. All of a sudden, on the hillside, appear police with rifles and all that because they think it's been a set-up.
3: Oh, right, okay, yeah.
2: And uh, no, it's, it's you could get this information, and uh, it's unbelievable. You're looking Snipers. You're thinking, Where? And one of the screws in our car, we're all going to die. He's gone, we're all going to die. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we pulled up. They got uh, changed cars, and we went on our way to Durham. Well, at Durham there was uh, there were six of us in in that wing. Uh, then they had lesser security wing, which is known as a submarine, and in there was nine. Uh, the Isle of Wight, there were Parkhurst security wing, there was twelve. At Chelmsford, I think there was about eight or nine. So we were amongst the like top thirty five criminals in, in, in England and we were all separated from the from the normal because they knew there would be hero worship. They knew there'd be this, that and the other. So they gotta keep us separated. We're running the prisons, not the craze. So that you, was
1: authorities' take on it. So were you locked down then? Did you have all your privileges lost?
2: Well no, 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 no. They gave us more privileges. Because upstairs from us was the nonce's wing uh, Brady and Brady, all them kind, of, Burgess and all them kind of people. The they believed that the cons were going to actually kill them, so they never ever allowed them to have food made in the prison, brought there. You understand me. What they did, the food was given to us whole. It was given to us raw. We cooked our own food, and me and Charlie Richardson would have cooked. So we knew everything that would, would go on. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say you cooked your own food, how did you cook your own food? Oh, we had a little, cook- a little cookhouse there with an oven in, and which the screws would use. But they gave it to us. So a little crack here. Bruce Reynolds had been everywhere Charlie looked up to Bruce Reynolds but he did couldn't let him know that so he said uh, Charlie said look he said we're going to do something today I said what we're going to do he said we're going to do a curry he said but we've got to be careful we don't want any criticism off of Bruce Reynolds so okay no mistakes but what I did I wanted to get the curry to be a nice brown I didn't, want, I didn't want it to be dull. So I got some cochineal this kind of stuff you put in, a colour in. I right. put in a Muslim name in a curry. And I put this brown one in, but it came out red. <laughs> so then I thought, if you put blue with red... You get green. You get it. green. <laughs> so I tried that. And Charlie's watching me. You fucked it up again. <laughs> <laughs> green
3: go. I said well,
2: leave it out Charlie we'll get there right now I'll tell you what if we put pur- purple in or we put this what's the name in it should try and even just get it back to a proper colour <laughs> anyway so <laughs> we put in the what's the name we put it in a uh, uh, some colour and we got it down to a brownish <laughs> but it was a bright brown and the thing was <laughs> The little bits of kind of uh, peas and stuff like that shine. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> like, like luminous, you know what I mean? Anyway, we've, got, <laughs> we've gone up and we've presented it to Bruce and the other lads. And Bruce has gone, most unusual colour I've ever seen. He said, well, I'll tell you what, it tastes nice. <laughs> he said, uh, but the colour disturbs me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie... And Charlie was oh. what's the name? But yeah, they, they were good people, really. And then they we had the gangsters versus the bank robbers. So there was Paul Seaborn and Bruce Reynolds were the gangsters. Ah, uh, sorry, was the the robbers? The, the bank robbers. Paul Seaborn was the one who actually got Bruce Reynolds out of uh, what's the name? Oh right, out, out, out of uh, sorry. Z out of uh, the helicoptered him out. No, no, got him over the wall. Oh or, right, okay, right, yeah. yeah. So we we played them at tennis. So we'd all be watching tennis, like uh, King and Nat Travelova or whatever her name was, uh, and some of the the older older men tennis players. So we'd go out there. We'd have our overalls on, t shirt on, or vest. We've got a tennis bat and we're gonna play tennis. Anyway, knocked the ball over. And it was it was funny really to be able to say Love fifteen, you know, <laughs> juice and all this kind of thing. Anyway, I put a ball over and uh I went, That's in and uh Bruce went, No, he said, I don't think so. I said, What do you know you're four eyed cunt? <laughs> but I didn't mean it like that. You understand what I'm saying? I just, it just came out. And uh, anyway, he came running over, hit me over there with a bat. (laughs) I've knocked it aside and clubbed him with mine.
3: (laughs) Game of gentleman tennis. Yeah, it really was, yeah.
2: And uh, we went in front of a governor called Steinhausen. And Steinhausen said, Worst things have happened at Wimbledon. I'll give you both a caution. So, you know, me and Bruce got along well after that until um, we went to Mayston Prison and I met him again. And we're sitting in the cell having a chat with a few other guys. I don't know why I said it. I said, Bruce, I said, listen, do you know that incident up in Durham? He said, Yeah. I said, I never meant that, you know, really. It was just, just came out. Heated the game. So I said, I'm sorry about that. He went, Do you know, Chris? He said, I've waited a long time for me to hear that. I never knew saying something to somebody like that could wound somebody so deeply. But we, we became very good friends. I went to his funeral. His son made the most marvellous funeral for him. In, in, you know best one I've ever been to really put an awful lot of effort into it a lot of love for his dad it it was wonderful and Bruce was a very good friend decent man honourable you know just he should have stuck with bikes building them selling them and everything else he'd have built himself a small fortune you know just the way some people walk down the road and it's the wrong road, and and, and that you know. So, and it all in all, you know, it was uh, it was a game of tennis. And then, do you know what a screw did? He sold it to the News of the World. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> really, that's what screws did. Yeah, the only way they could say. get information, yeah, out of uh, out of prison, being top security, yeah. was if they picked up the phone and given the information, and uh, and they did. <laughs> well... Did you meet any other
1: high-profile prisoners?
2: Yeah, I met loads of them.
1: Who were the, like, most famous or notorious?
2: The most notorious... I don't know. We were the most notorious. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> who? Because Richardson was notorious, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, but he weren't... I mean, Charlie was a businessman. Yeah. He he, he never... You've met his wife. Yeah, she's lovely, isn't she? Lovely. She's, yeah, you she's know, a good woman, yeah. She, you know... She kind of, Veronica's is brilliant. I mean, you know, she just, you know, she wouldn't be with Charlie if he was a, no, an animal yeah. or anything else yeah. like that. He's a decent man. And then who else? Uh, Roy, Roy the Weasel, Roy James. He was like the getaway driver. Um, I met, uh, what's her name? Big Z. Ronald Biggs. Yeah, Ronald Biggs. What was he like? Nice bloke. You know, I've got to say, when I'm speaking to them, I'm from their world. you understand what I'm saying? They know me from prison. I know them from prison. I treat them with respect. They treat me with respect. They don't want to involve me in any crime, and I don't want to involve them in any crime. So we've got a place where we all meet. Uh, mainly at charity events. Yeah, it
3: is, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and yeah. everybody does treat people decently. Yeah, they do, they. yeah, yeah, it's nice.
2: You know, so that's yeah. that's that's great. I mean, people come along there, they come along there just to, I don't know, just to, like, invest a few pounds, buy books, buy memorabilia, uh, listen to people talk. Uh, the greatest is what they love doing is taking photographs. Uh, and the other thing is getting you to sign all bits of paper and books which they then put on eBay um, <laughs> <laughs> did, did any of your time overlap with Bronson never t- he he, he went in when I was in but I will tell you about Charlie Bronson uh, one of his representatives uh, a guy called Gus came to me and uh, said Chris you I, I want to give you something. And he gave me this uh, £50. Pound. He said, that's from Charlie towards the charity. He was there.
3: Oh, I didn't go. It was the other week. was it? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. I missed that one. Well,
2: you know, and he gave me that. And uh, when he learnt that we was at, that, that the old old man are having an auction, a charity auction, selling paintings and things, Charles Bronson sent about four, uh, what's the name yeah his paintings alone. paintings down wow. to encourage it and also um, Tony Turner brought Tone, down. Tony does yeah. a lot of, he needs a good yeah. shout up Tony yeah he? yeah what he does but uh, no all in all it's you know it's, it's it's what it is And but so many of them I mean he's seen as being beyond redemption Bronson he, he's never killed anybody He's never really harmed anybody in, scro- in in prison that they've gone into a hospital or anything else like that. He's never another con, so he's gone out of the door and been so badly damaged, never walked again. They've given up on him. But I hope he never gives up on himself. He lives in his own little world. Um, he does his art the way he sees it. And he puts in words and numbers, doesn't he? He does all that kind of stuff. Um, But he's always there with people. I mean, he got married. What happened there was just so tough for the guy, you understand, to deal with. What she married one day and then she's out partying over in Spain the next, and it's on all the papers, front page. It, It wasn't a good thing, you understand? So that guy's got to deal with that and deal with it in prison. Now he has dealt with it. He's at Woodhill Prison now. You know, lots of people write to him just to encourage him. And if anybody you know wants to write to him, he he, he loves getting a letter, and he responds to them as well. So you know, I I you know, I just hope to God he gets a chance.
1: Yeah, mail is like gold in prison, isn't it? You see the fellows yeah, looking yeah, at the guard. That's right,
2: yeah, and they're, they're sad uh, if they don't get yeah, any. That's right. I mean, a letter means so much to a man. Yeah. Well, they've got nothing, but when they pick up that little piece of paper, at least somebody cares, doesn't it? And that can mean an awful lot. That you know, for me personally, I'd like to see Charlie uh, go to somewhere like Yeldor Manor, where they nurture him bring him into the community but he would be prepared for that whilst he's in prison they'd take him out for a day somewhere let's see how he responds we would rehabilitate him instead of having him sitting in a cell not talking to anybody not meeting anybody else only prison officers it's you know I ain't giving anybody a chance a waste of taxpayers money it is a waste of taxpayer money Yeah, it really is He's done 45
1: years. <laughs> yeah. So I've watched these various movies about the craze. Are they realistic? And watch? have you watched them yourself? And what,
2: what do you think? No. I, I mean, I, I had quite a bit to do with Legend. And I still meet up with the producer, Brian Eglin, And what he wanted, he wanted a story. He didn't want to go along with the violent part. Although that was part, it couldn't all be about that had to be about something else. And I was telling him about Frances. And in my opinion, what happened was her going down brought us all down. And um, and Reggie couldn't handle it. He couldn't deal with it. And he just was a loose wire, really, in many respects. Um, No, I think that uh, legend is a love story. I think now the other two the other Cray films are I, I've not watched them really. I'm not interested because it seems everybody's jumping on the bagwagon and nobody's telling the real story. It's the way they see it. They weren't there. They weren't sitting in the dock. They weren't observers. Many of them weren't even alive. they weren't even born. So Sean, that's my opinion. Well, it's good you've brought the authentic version here today. Yeah, well, I've I've done my best. You
1: certainly have. To people watching this, is there anything you'd like to say to them?
2: Yeah, I'd say this. You can judge me if you like, and, and that's only rightly so. But, you know, I don't give up on anybody. There may be somebody in your community that you're looking down on that may be a person that's helped somebody done something you've never seen that all you ever see is the bad stuff given the chance that person might change might be a youngster he feels he don't belong make it help him belong form a community that cares about the community doesn't care about those with money doesn't care about those that have got a bigger and better house care about the guy who ain't got no house and he'll thank you
1: and if you want to support chris Click down into the description box below this video and you'll see the links to the work that he's doing now. And just to go over to you again, John, so your podcast went up about two or three months ago. Yeah, Hundreds of thousands of views. It's been one of the fastest watched ones. What have the responses been like for you in your life?
3: It's been, been fantastic and positive. You know, um, like i say before, I've had loads of nonsense thrown my way, but I've been getting a lot of stuff coming from America um canada as well a lot of victims of abuse getting in touch with me um and just encouraging me to continue and when i get it it goes a long long way you know so it's been really really good and and the other thing is um i've sort of d- done an interview with, now with um you know a good friend of yours pepsi watson adam watson we'll put the link to that yeah,
1: interview uh, in the description box uh, below this video of pepsi watson So please click over and support Pepsi's channel as well. And that's
3: what I was going to say. You know, what what Pepsi's doing is fantastic and he's really getting out there as well. And uh, he wants the law changed, you know, and hopefully it will. And I think and a lot of what I'm doing as well is um, going out and I attend rallies and I give speeches and everything else. And I'm getting a lot of people that have fallen foul of the family court system, uh, the criminal justice system, and again, the whistleblowers have been bullied into silence. And without the whistleblowers, the story never gets out. And what we're looking at doing is getting the law changed because Parliament is totally unaccountable. You know, this is absolutely outrageous. They are just running roughshod over everything. Um, again, we we discussed this a couple of times about attitude towards policing, me and Chris. And and, and you said to me, Chris, that the, the one thing you didn't like were the corrupt ones like the Flying Squad and the Regional Crime Squad, whereas we need coppers on the street
2: yeah that's right you yeah. know
3: and, and when people are reporting rapes they need a team that's specialist in dealing with rapes that will that will listen to them but, but they're the they
2: can I just sorry you of course here. there's a woman uh, she's a reporter for their Newham Express and she's telling me about this woman that she was talking to uh, she left she'd gone into uh, a shop and buy something came out went to her car, dropped her keys on the floor unbeknown to her and uh, she's fiddling about and this guy comes up, he smiles at her, looks at her like, winks at her, bends down, picks the keys up, gets in the car and drives off with it. And uh, she thought, what's going on? Anyway, she, the car's got something special about it and she was able to find out where it was. She went to the house Uh, Knocked on the door. The guy came out and she confronted him. uh, She called the police. Uh, Police said they're not interested. They've got something else to do. Uh, Eventually, when they did come, uh, they spoke to the guy. They looked at the car, which had false number plates on and still did nothing. Now that's... It's unbelievable. It's wrong. Yeah, but you can't believe that that would go on. Yeah. um On my day... The police would not do that. The police, if you make a telephone call, they're there in minutes. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Well, well
3: what, what I'm getting are people that that have got um, cases of, of child abuse they want to report against either themselves or against you know involving their children. And the um, CPS now are only running with cases that they know they're going to win, which is like almost a civil court thing. You know, 51% we're going to win, we'll go with it. You know, we used to prosecute cases at a 2% success rate and we would do it wholeheartedly and with tenacity you know and i was a very very tenacious detective and and i i did so because i was putting paedophiles away and i hated them and i did everything to destroy them and i would, hand on heart they hurt kids i wanted to hurt them um but we have been let down so we I, I want to organize like a day of remembrance in in london and i want to get all the groups together all the victims and survivor groups
2: Westminster Abbey, had, you could do it there. Yeah, that's exactly right around there. Because we're they there. had that, uh, I went to a, a thing there where, will you lend me 20 quid, Mum?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. And
2: You're what,
3: but the twins. Yeah, m- yes. m- me
2: and uh, Ronnie Richardson went. Nice. And also the staff of the lay community. And Amber Rudd was there. She led the uh, prayers and everything else like that. And uh, there was a lot of letting go where people would not really grieve. And Ronnie Richardson was one of them. When her son died, she lost her son, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. she she didn't know how to deal with it, and she she was too busy being a mum. She'd lost her father, lost Charlie, lost Lee, you know, and lost the uh, so much that she didn't want to lose the rest of the family. So her mind was concentrated on them. But when she came to the uh, Westminster Abbey and listened. She realised she were not alone and the tears started to flow, and things got better for her. She could speak a bit more. And she came to the Lee and gave a talk. Yeah. You know, and so Bobby Cummings, I'm not a gangster, he did it as well. Yeah, I was there when he yeah, did yeah. that. So, you know, there's many, many things, but you've hit it right on the nail. It's when they go to the uh, CCP or whatever it is. They just push him away. It was going to cost money, yep. they they run. They don't want to know. So, you know, an old lady can be in a house. A guy can get in there. He's very threatening. And she can clobber him and get rid of him out of the house. But he will still get a light sentence. They, but the the people who really need... Look at Bronson in there, 45 years. Has he gone and in intimidated an old lady? Has he tried to nick her, her jewellery? And everything else, no, he ain't. And That's a sad part of of the situation.
3: Well, it's upside Isn't?
2: down. Pardon? The whole thing is upside down. It is an upside um, down no, world. No, yeah. But John, um, you know that's a, such a good idea of going along and having that open
3: but, but, day. But we've children have been lost. Children not only lost into the care system, but you know, like like when you go to to um, yeah. the lay and that that's lost children from yeah. alcoholism because he's yeah. struggling with the demons from childhood. Yeah. You know, suicides, the other one. Now we were talking earlier, Chris, yeah. and, and you're saying about their success stories, but what about those that don't make yeah, it that make far? It, yeah.
2: You know, well, what about the number of people who die? Yeah. Who leave the Lee and then you get a telephone call. I mean, I'll tell you when I took a guy to call Epsom Crown call, Terry, his name was smashing kid. And, uh, when I get told I've got to take him, I've got to find him and uh, I'm looking for him and I am he's in, the, we had a, a playroom, a sports room and a snooker table, he was in there playing snooker. I went, Terry, yeah, he said, I'm here. Hello, Chris, he said, what do you want me for? I said, I'm taking the court tomorrow. So he said, all right, he said, uh, that's good. And he it, it, it looked like, a bit like that ginger. What's his name? Bieber, whatever his name is. Justin Bieber. Yeah, Justin Bieber. <laughs> ginger Beaver. When they call him Ginger. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we've kind of met. In the morning, I'm going to be in there at six. I've got a plan in my head. On the way down, I'm talking to him. I learned he's a twin. Right, yeah. You know, his brother hasn't come into rehab. He's in prison. So I take him down there. I said, where's your mum live? And he took me down to this house. It was a beautiful house, roses round the door, uh, in a nice place, secluded. Knocked to the door, little old lady came to the door. And she went, Terry, how are you? So I said, is, it, is this your mum? He went, yeah. Apparently, her and her husband uh, had adopted these two twins and they were great when they were little, when she was bringing them up. But when they got old enough to go and mix with other kids, right. that's where they went wrong. So it started out with cannabis and playing around with that. Then some kids said, well, look, why don't you try a bit of this? Heroin. And the next thing you know, they're in it up to their eyes, then committing crime, shoplifting, all the rest of it. So I, she said, I tried everything I could. And her husband worked for British Aerospace. He had a heart, heart attack and died. And I felt real sympathy for this woman. So I I kind of thought I'm going to battle, get Terry back. And I did, and the judge listened. And I, I felt so honoured and proud to, for that day. So I got him back to the Lake community, and he was doing great. I'm I'm <laughs> chuffed. And uh, my coward came in, the probation officer. Uh, and he went, Chris, he said, uh, I've got a letter for you. I said, Have you really? He said, What is it? And it was a letter from Surrey Probation Service. It said, We're sorry to inform you that Terry died of a drug induced asphyxiation. He knew there was a better way and a way that would be successful, but he couldn't let go of the old ways. Top, he topped himself. He topped himself, oh yeah. My God. By taking drugs. Yeah. What? it but what it did in fact uh, intoxication is they take too much, but then they they swallow and they choke they,
3: they choke yeah 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 I've you heard know, they that. choke yeah, on they, their own they drown on their own yeah
2: that's right right and that's for a lot of people that they leave and they they mess up entirely, you know, and you feel really sad for you know a young girl and sort of like you go in and she's cutting herself to pieces. And you ask why. It's because she hates herself. You understand she doesn't find anything good in her life. And then you meet her outside the church. And you say, how are you, Lisa? I'm happier than I've ever been. I've got my little dog. I've got my boyfriend. Everything's working. It's wonderful. Then you pick up the paper and you learn about two years later that she's actually tried to burn down an Asian I remember this one. yeah, yeah an shop. Asian shop um, for whatever reason I don't know um, and then she goes to Broadmoor in Broadmoor she commits suicide but this was a girl you would have trusted with your children she'd have been a, a nice you know person and would look after a child but she was somebody who how can I put it I never heard a swear word come out of her mouth. This.
3: Sometimes some of the best. And I help took her, I'll tell
2: out. you what I did with her. When they turned around at Lee and said, Look, we can no longer have her here because she's cut herself so badly. I went to the hospital, John Radcliffe, where she was, and I picked her up from there and I took her to the Jesus Army on the Woodstock Road. And the pastor there turned around and said to me, well, I'm trying to, you know, point out how much help she needs. She's in deep, deep trouble. Can you open the door and let her in? And he said, "Chrissy said, you're not selling her to us. Let her speak for herself. Because he knew how desperate
0: I was to get her in. And... Um, She spoke and she
2: said things, and he said, we welcome you into the community. You'll stay here. You'll be working with the the other ladies. You'll be with the ladies in their dormitory. So yes, you got a place. And as a reward, she called me to their place in Northampton, the Jesus Army, have a meeting, a big gathering, Um, and I went along to that. I said, why'd you invite me here? She said, I want to say thank you. So. Jesus had a plan for her life.
3: I I had a little girl in care that we helped. And uh, (laughs) to say thank you, her and her sister, they were travellers. that went shoplifting and nicked me some cider.
2: (laughs) Well, with Lisa, I'll tell you what happened. She left the Jesus community to go back to Peterborough. And while she was up there, she got some drugs and brought them back to the community. They, They couldn't have it. Kicked her out. And they didn't kick her out. What they said is, we can take care of you in the community. We'll help to get all your benefits together. We'll help you with finance accommodation. We'll do everything, but we can't have we you can't in have this it, house. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so then when I saw her, that was about a year later. She'd met a boyfriend. She had a nice place to live. Had a little dog and that was it. And then to learn she committed suicide in Broadmoor was a terrible tragedy. But that... That's what it goes. If you yeah. choose to walk the devil's path, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're gonna pay the devil's price, you understand what I'm saying? And he once every- said, I once said to a kid, I said Tell me, I said, what, what what is heroin like? He said it wants you, it wants your wife, it wants your mother, your father, it wants your whole family and it wants everything you've got. That's what heroin is. Yeah. It's the devil incarnate. So you know, I mean, that was that was it. But it's you know, terrible.
3: A lot of the, the street prostitutes are all one heroin but
2: The thing is, I mean, like I said before, I'm sort of like a place now where I'm more near the end than the beginning. But you've got an awful lot to do, John. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying, and I don't think there could be any more I think more moving than to have a group of people going to Westminster Abbey and bow their head for every child that died. Yeah, yeah, every lost child. You understand what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, no, I agree. And you could call it every lost child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think people would travel from one end of England to the other. Yeah, well, To so. go down standing in, you know, standing in, standing on her. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with them children.
3: You know, and that's the reason I do it, because I... I um, I've seen it, like with the kids, with my kids. Two of them, the older 2 went won't We're going to go and care, and and they turned into good lads. And I thought, well, well, I can do more. There's more I can do, and I, and I did. And um, it. But it, it's it's a tough thing, uh, you know, batting to pick up, Chris, isn't it? Because it's all consuming at
2: times, you know. Jesus was on his own. Yeah. Or not.
1: And, and we've got John scheduled to come back on the podcast. So, if you have a question for him. Please put it in the comment section below this video. And I will put your questions to him in the next podcast. So, fellas, you've been very generous with your time, Chris. Take it easy, Thank God you, AC. God
2: bless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, so
0: nice. Cheers, yeah. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Please put your comments below this video if you've enjoyed it. Thank you.